you're here. We are in Electric City. Well, we're not yet, but what, gentlemen, how has your week been so far? Pretty good, all things considered. I always start out with all things considered, but it's been a, it's a sleepy week. I feel a little th- lethargic today. Yeah, I'm I'm hanging in there. I, I I feel like I'm taking care taking care of all my stuff as everything continues to light on flames. Uh, you know, especially <laughs> especially too. I mean, obviously we talk a lot about games, but also you know, me in particular doing the streaming thing. I'm very much at the the intersection of streaming and games, uh, and you know, it's been a lot of a lot of news to sort of take in uh, with with that. Yep. Um, so it just sort of, you know, just, uh, you know, let, let, letting people who need to be heard be heard, I think is, uh, it, that's been the most important thing for several weeks and it continues to be uh, a vital thing for, for the right people's voices to be listened to. Absolutely. And you know what? <laughs> Upon reflection, it was not my intention to sit here. And this is just the burden of the times. <laughs> Absolutely. It was not my intention to sit here and be like, actually, let's talk about how everything is terrible. <laughs> because even even in these circles we're in, right, where we're talking hmm. about, you know, we're talking about cartoons today. A, a very good, excellent cartoon. But we are talking about cartoons, but even in there, there have been, things have been happening. Like, you know, obviously, I, I think you're talking about the, the Mixer situation, right? Like the Well, and, the Mixer and- situation is, is a part of it. Mixer situation, of course, is a good example of how a large business has thrown all of the people who, and I'm not talking about, there's a few people who made out uh, just fine, sure. Fine, because they got their contracts cashed out, and good for them, get paid. Absolutely, Ninja and Shroud do get paid, but you know a lot of people who maybe went over there hoping to do well on that platform. Uh, you know, oh hey, you want to go to Facebook Gaming? No, nobody wants to go to face. No one wants to go to the website <laughs> that is famous for falsifying their videos numbers and destroying a lot of outlets in the process. No one wants no. that. Um, so you know that's bad for them. And then of course there's also you know there's been it's been a a high week for you know allegations of abuse. Uh, yes. and, and that uh, area as well you know I, I it's for for me who's been watching streams for a long time I I did not know too many of the people involved myself but the, the one name I did recognize I had always known as a bully and so it's kind of one of those things where you know you're just like yeah like you, you know of course I'm like six layers away from everything so it's right. like I, I knew I should have spoken up because I was all I the stories I heard was like this guy's an asshole to me because you know he yelled at me in twitch chat as opposed to what might go on at events or you because that's really where the important stuff is where people exploit power right. over others uh, which is you know what a lot of this comes back to yeah and then that's that's mostly you know uh, that's kind of the the dissonance i was trying to address which is like on one hand there there are of course these bigger economic things that are happening to just about everybody and on the other there are these what you know you could uh, account to all sorts of different issues but it's definitely structural issues of people who are able to use their power imbalance to abuse others, you know, and it's, and it's just <laughs> endemic to structures and mm-hmm. particular structures, it turns out. And it's been, it's been exhausting, I'm sure. Um, but, but you did play a video game, a video's I, game. I did. I finally got around to finishing a playthrough of Titanfall 2, which is mm. probably one of the best reviewed mech games ever although you know it's funny calling it a mech game because i think the game that it's most similar to that i've played in terms of um, premise 
is Shogo because it's a game in which you spend uh it's a first person shooter game first and foremost both of them Shogo and right. Titanfall 2 and it's a game where you spend some levels uh in a mech and then some levels on foot now of course Titanfall the series including Titanfall 2 is known for having a lot of really cool movement sort of that mirror's edge style you know wall running and and various forms of parkour and things like that uh, you know, so you have that that going on there as well. I enjoyed my time with it. It's definitely one of those le- the games that is, I think, known for its clever level design and competent FPS gameplay feel. Uh, and it has both of those things. You know, everyone talks about the time travel level and you know this and that, and, and those things are all there, and they're they're very fun. Um, so I enjoyed it. You know, it's it's on Steam now. I, I didn't mean to play it, start playing it on the day it came out on Steam, but I did. Uh, so that was funny. <laughs> Uh, but it's been out in Origin, of course, for years. EA's you know platform, and uh, usually you can get it for less than ten bucks. And it's a, it's a great if, if single player first person shooter campaigns are something you enjoy. It is a game I would highly recommend, even if the main character is voiced by Matt Mercer. <laughs> <laughs> now the Sorry. movement in that game feels so good, though. Yeah, like the, yeah. The, it's so kinetic and so smooth. Yeah, I'm gonna be looking into speedrunning it. As you might imagine, the skill ceiling for the movement is very high in the game, and it's a Source Engine game. So some of the same tricks, uh, the same bunny hopping tricks that exist in other Source games, do exist in some form in Titanfall 2. Uh, and I've never really done a speedrun like that before, if that sort of movement. So I'm gonna try it. You know, I'm gonna try it. Probably finish a few runs. If I don't like it, I'll move on. And if if I do like it, I'll probably you know try and set some sort of you know reasonable goal. Uh, you know, for for learning and getting, getting you know other folks you know who are also into it. The one of the biggest runners for Titanfall Two is a streamer named Brian Nada, who um, is one of the most outspoken leftists in speedrunning. So bless bless <laughs> you, bless you, Bri. I, you'll never listen to this, but bless you. <laughs> What does he usually stream? Does he have a uh, like whatever his t- t- favorite games? Uh, Titanfall Two is really his his thing. Mm-hmm. He was for years apparently a developer uh, or part of the team for Project M uh, before speedrunning, and then uh, oh. his other big speedrunning thing uh, since then is Control. He's one, he's one of the top runners for Control uh, Remedies game from last year. Yeah, I always wanted to check that out. Yeah, no, same. That that, that game definitely seems like it's worth uh, worth a romp. Uh, but that's about it. Oh, I did also want to highlight, you know, we, we were talking about, uh, uh, you know, inclusivity and everything. I really, really wanted to highlight my most recent Overboost interview, which was with a, a French runner named Soph. Uh, she runs Final Fantasy games, Resident Evil games, other things. It was really cool to talk to her. Uh, you know, she told me about her and her family's Mega Drive. And she did explain it was Neo Genesis and everything. Cool. But, um, but it, it's a really fun interview. And it's also, you know, one of those things where, where you know, I... There are so many voices in just speedrunning that I feel like need to be heard louder. And so one of the things I'm really excited to do is try and, you know, get a more interesting group of people than just, you know, not that the folks who run uh, Link to the Past are bad people or whatever, but, you know, there's a lot of people out there with a lot of interesting stories, I think, and hearing those stories is worthwhile. Definitely. Absolutely. I think it's going to do it just it, hearing the different kinds of approaches is, is in my experience, it, it what helped like elucidate what the point of speedrunning was like uh, famously <laughs> I have been somewhat adversarial to speedrunning and, and I think being exposed to all the people who do it really helps uh, like it's a thing it's a thing that people enjoy and and a lot of people come to it different ways and overboost has been fun to see to hear rather how people come to it individually what are you boys up to I could shotgun a few things real quick I've been uh it's my first week off from school so <laughs> 
I'm sorry. BMC just just fucking shotgun something on on camera. I'm the only one not on camera, but this, this I always enjoy calling out PMC visually. I'm no, sorry, it's, Stephen. It's, it was Go a ahead. very satisfying movement. Speaking of satisfying gun movements, I'll touch upon this briefly. I started Last of Us Two. Um, <gasps> the uh, speaking of gun movements, uh, the discourse. There's a lot of it's animation. Coming. There's a, well. I want to jump into it more thoroughly, maybe in two weeks. That's when I anticipate finishing the game. So I rough, sure. rough, I'm taking my time with it. But uh, the, Ellie has some particularly fine gun animation when she uh, fixes her weapons, and uh, PMC's maneuvers kind of reminded me like that. But anyway, you could take everything I said about Last of Us Part 1, positives, and really apply it and amplify it for Part 2. I can't really speak to the plot yet. All my, I can't really speak to anything overwhelmingly critically. Um, the gameplay is roughly the same with some new nifty maneuvers added in for good measure. But again, it, it, its strength lies in its atmospheric storytelling, which is very much on point in part two. I will say, as of now, the character interactions are particularly good, too. I always point out and highlight the quiet moments, and there are a lot of quiet moments between you, Ellie, and a companion named Dina early on in the game in a, in a almost nearly deserted Seattle, which is very satisfying. Uh, I'll quickly go through a few things. I am continuing my trek through Voyager. I know I didn't really touch upon any criticism or praises of the show. It is what introduced me to Star Trek as a young lad. My mother and I would watch it. I was particularly, like many kids, particularly captivated by the Borg as a villain, so I very much gravitated to Voyager early on. And the storytelling wasn't too nuanced that it pushed me away, which is probably why, why I enjoyed it and gravitated it to as a kid. But I, I'm I'm honestly enjoying my rewatch. I'm halfway through season two. I mean, the criticisms and the negatives have been expounded upon at length by this point. I'll grow over them very briefly. the The cast is disappointing can, can and I underwhelming. Do it? You want to do it? Go for it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't... <laughs> was that no, Stephen? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was now, just trying to be funny. No, you jump in. You can. No, no, no. I mean, I, I really can only say what what I think about Voyager, and, I, and I'm more interested to hear what you think. And, and maybe, you know, a, a lot of the stuff I would say is probably what, what you would say, right? And you were saying already, like, the cast isn't super interesting, right? Yeah, you, that, you have... that, that's the biggest issue, because the character interactions are incredibly stiff, and everyone is incredibly... I don't think archetypal is the right word because the characters just don't have a lot of complexity. They're all very surface level, especially at the beginning. Now, the writers will flesh some of them out. And some of the highlights, like I've mentioned before, the Doctor is my personal favorite highlight. Um, and I like Janeway's uh, decent... Eh, I don't know. I can't. It's tough. Janeway, she makes some really unusual calls as a captain, but I still right. like her as a character. Um, I'm only, again, most of the have show gotten- is still a blur. Two Vicks, I haven't gotten there yet. Okay, yeah. Okay. I, I, I know what happens, but I have on my rewatch, I'm only about episode 10. My wife and I are very much looking forward to, she's a big Jonathan Frakes fan, and we're looking forward to the Jonathan Frakes Q episode in roughly about seven episodes. But one thing I will say in Voyager's uh, defense is there's something like primordial, primordial about the concept, about just returning home, like odyssey style which i find very captivating just mm. like whenever i re- it's like comfort food it's it's the people who really enjoyed code geass voyager is kind of like my code geass like to a point i don't really care too much about i will argue that Vo- star trek voyager is a better show than code geass but I, the uh, two wow. are so like i don't know it's our apples and oranges it's tough to like I don't know, critically evaluate both the merits of both, like, play side by side. But the people who argue for, like, Code Geass, like, I get what you mean. Like, it's fun junk food. It's very comforting. And it's comforting knowing that no, no matter where I am, 
I can sit down, and the fucking Voyager is still going to be in the Delta Quadrant trying to get home. And there's something <laughs> there's something very satisfying and comforting about that fact. And I do like just because if you tr- ba- break apart and like boil down stories to their essence, one like reoccurring pattern is just trying to get home. It's something we can all relate to, and I very much empathize with the characters in this plight. I just wish the characters were a little bit more interesting. Yeah. Um, just to, I'm going to, I'm going to skip my Marin a little tiny bit because I really want to talk about Voyager with, with Steven Hero. My Voyager, um, my Voyager criticisms are going to become more pronounced once I reach the good, some good stuff and some, a lot of bad stuff, but like see end of season three, season four, I, the one of the reasons why I chose to rewatch Voyager now is because after Picard, I wanted to, my, I watched it with my wife and she wanted to learn a little bit more about like seven, for example. So that's why cool. we're kind of going back through Voyager. Yeah, I so um you know just real quick on my for for me uh, I have returned to Pokemon Sword and Shield because the DLC came out. This is not mech related, but I, I'm it, uh, Pokemon. It fills a particular niche for me. I don't need it to be anything more fancy than it is. And Sword and Shield added a lot of quality of life stuff that already improved the stuff that's there. Um, if if I had a, a side note, uh, in, unrelated to the Voyager thing, I'm about to say it is that I, I find it very odd that the Pokemon fan base regards pokemon sun and moon as like failures uh because pokemon sun and moon are incredible and i and i truly don't understand that take uh but anyway yeah maybe <laughs> we can i would love to do in the same way that that steven here and i uh got into an escape pod and to talk about final fantasy 7 i would love to do a similar one for pokemon with with pmc just on that topic like i'm i'm very interested in why people would think that like that's astonishing i, I mean not that i really think any pokemon game i've played is a failure i think i've played like one two four and seven uh are the ones I've that played. sounds right and uh and the other one the older ones are good but moon was the best so i don't yeah i don't know i don't get it at all but it's it's fine it it is it is right now it is kind of like perfect um uh you know it's exactly what i need it to be it's number crunching right it's something i can do while listening to podcasts um but with when it comes to voyager the 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 one thing I, i think that is that would be interesting to revisit would be the a lot of people at the time were very annoyed with the way that, uh, the, you know, the reset button, that's the m- number one, I think like r- criticism when it comes to Voyager and threshold, the episode threshold. Um, is that the warp 10 episode? Yeah. That's the infinite warp episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the, the thing for me is, is more just as, uh, it seems like there's just a lot of in the background tension when it comes to just like burnout, there was clearly some drama between actors, which like bled over into like the writing and the work. Like you know, famously, the Chakotay man is informed by uh, a, a like quote unquote like culture expert who was like a well known charlatan and fraud afterwards. Yeah, I was reading so, about like, that. Yeah, so you know, like, and and you can feel that in it when it's like coming apart at the seams you know like it when when and and like there's times where you're watching it and you're like oh balana is cool i like this episode about torres like i i'm connecting to the, her struggle here or it's like ah tuvok you're funny <laughs> you know like like it's everyone's like it's not like everyone on voyager is terrible like i, I am kind of a you know like I, I relent when people tell me they like the doctor in the same way that there are some people pmc did you know there are people on this earth who do not like miles o'brien the fuck yeah the- <laughs> It's so what? interesting. All the, these things happen to this man, and the best thing you got is I don't like him. Like, what did he, he do to you? 
he's so there are people for whom and you know i'm not calling these people out necessarily like this is not my i'm not saying like oh how dare you even though i i tend to agree with pmc uh you know i i there are people for whom his his you know cardassian racism was not properly addressed and then and the way that he is so like you know i would describe his character typing as like every man right um but yeah he's cut from the same cloth as like waka i feel like Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, using that example, I think there are people for whom that sort of person is like not beyond the pale as far as like irredeemable, but just not really someone they want to be with. Right. And like, you you know, and I'm not saying that this is something that everyone should be doing, but you and I are, are sitting here being like, well, you know, people worked together to create this this like structure of a of a character rather than a, a real human being with complications and nuances you know versus like but that's not how everyone perceives fiction it, it seems like a lot of people not a lot of people it seems like for many people that y- your first filter is like you know if this was someone i was hanging out with how would i perceive them right um and that's kind of the thing with o'brien and it feels like with voyager you can really i think people who really enjoy voyager ha- have that sort of sense about the crew Right. Because they're even though they're kind of broadly drawn, it allows you to sort of fill in the blanks with your you're like this is the persona thing. Right. Where like you, you sort of one of the appeals of persona is that it's not just a group. It's a friend group. Right. And so it's not just that those archetypes like you're not assigning individuals to individual people, you know, as much as people, you know, can maybe fill into like archetypes. Right. Like I know people I would describe as like jokesters or people who are like you know uh uh performers or clowns or do you know what i mean in friend groups right like that's a thing that people do um i think voyager has that appeal especially with like a particular age group it definitely feels like also i think an a an era of daytime television was this the upn yeah, this was UPN, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And I think that's that. That's the same thing that I think is appealing about sometimes throwing on. Every once in a while, recently, I've been throwing on Babylon 5 for a lot of the same sorts of reasons, right? Where it's it's less like it, about the individual things that happen in the episode, although Babylon 5 is pretty good. Like, it's 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 a thing where... You know how when you recommend a, a piece of, of fiction to someone and, you know, you, your Im- immediate emotional reaction is just like, oh, I liked this or I didn't like it. And then, like, the next second you're thinking about all of the, like, things you need to let them know are oh, happening. So this is like a thi- I recommend an anime to someone. Right. Almost. I was going to say, this This is anime recommendations for sure. Like, um, fucking Food Wars is on Netflix now. And... Um, <laughs> Food Wars is very fun, but it's horny, and and its characters are supposed to be in, like, a boarding school setting, so some of them are on the younger side and still in the horniness, right? And, like, if that's a deal-breaker for you, and I'm not saying, like, that's a weird thing to be a deal-breaker, like, I totally understand it. It's just one of those things, like, this is why we bring up on our show, like, it's a shame when uh, things, like, indulge in this shit, because... It's it's it, it makes it difficult to engage with a text that isn't necessarily concerned with that, right? Like, oh <laughs> I mean, listen, Erica Lenbeck is a treasure, and we should all be uh, aware of that every single day when we wake up. 
we should <laughs> turn to our air pictures of Erica Lindbeck and say thank you and then move on with our day. <laughs> Sidebar, though, I'm very much looking forward to uh, when PMC finally gets to a uh, 7 remake on stream. What's, what's great about that, I agree with you, uh, Steven Hero, what's great about that is that I am positive that, that PMC is going to love it, is the thing. Like, I'm I'm really excited. Every, everything at this point that... I mean, the story of 2020 and 2020 and people's ability to consume media has convinced me that um, that folks have a really hard time consuming media when it uh, falls outside their specific expectations. I think that is a through line through both Final Fantasy VII Remake as well as Last of Us 2, which isn't to say that we can't have you know meaningful criticism of either of those works, but that is definitely something that I feel like I've noticed. Yeah. Uh, to maybe tie everything together in our opening discussion. <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. Speaking of, geez, speaking of tying things together, man, Big O is, is a real cool show, but th- this is one of the, of the things that we've covered, this is one of the only times where I've struggled to come up with a, a summary, not because of, like, all the things that happened in the episode, but I I kind of feel like I dreamed episode four. I, I'm, I'm not positive anything that happens in episode four actually occurs, and, and that's wonderful. Uh, obviously, we're not getting there immediately, but I, I just wanted to share that before we begin here. Um, any, other, any other thoughts you guys wanted to note before we dive into Big O? I, I think episode four is the perfect episode of anime to, to encounter at 1 a.m. at night while you're trying to get a snack before going to bed. That's really all I got to say. That's, you I, know... I feel yeah. like that's exactly right. I, I that's a, the, like the perfect encapsulation for episode three of Big O, Electric City. Roger Smith, sleeping in and missing out on scrambled eggs, finds himself visited once again by a mysterious woman, a client from the Paradigm firm who we learn run the city by the name of Casey. She comes at an inconvenient time. The power appears to have gone out, but it turns out to be related. She wants Roger to travel to a part of town referred to as Electric City, supposedly to get to the bottom of what has happened to the power in the city. When he meets the locals, he is told of the local god, a god of lightning who he must be wary of, but is suspicious of those beliefs. He almost happens upon his hidden lab or station in the woods, but is knocked out cold by a local mysterious hermit. This hermit, who I have named Secret Agent Grandpa, is in on the secret of Electric City, that with the termites, with that when the turbines for the main local generator are turned on, they awaken a kaiju with lightning manipulation capabilities, the local god. Unfortunately for everyone, somebody who was not in on that secret was Roger's client, Casey, who reintroduces herself as Angel, explaining that she truly hired Roger to find this hidden lab and reactivate the turbines. When she does, the local god comes knocking, and that's when the big O answers. Thanks to the actions of secret agent Grandpa, the Big O is able to destroy the local god with a flashy laser beam, lighting up Electric City in fulfillment of local prophecy. Electric City is... <laughs> this is a cool show. This show is super cool. Like, I know that that's like, an understatement, right? That is like, the most blasé thing you could say about the Big O. Um, it's designed to do that, right? And, and I guess the thing I would say is like, 
uh, I don't know, mission, fishing accomplished, right? <laughs> like, it's really, really cool. Uh, any, any opening thoughts on this one before, before, actually, you know what? Before we, I, I, I grill you both, I have a direct question for PMC Trail. Mm-hmm. Do it. PMC, you, you have some uh, experience with, with pianos. Uh, I, I know that uh, in, in your, your family home, there was a, a piano, and I believe in your current home now, there is a piano. Uh, and, and I was curious because, you know, I I've, don't really have a conception of what it's like to live in a home with a piano and what it would be like to be <laughs> trying to do anything when someone is playing a piano. Um, is... Would Dorothy be able to play a piano that loudly? Like, it seems like, you know, Roger, I, I assume, lives in something comparable to the Wayne Mansion, right? Like, that's, that's, I feel like it is, it's kind of a cliche to compare these two shows like that, but that, that's fair, right? We've seen some outside uh, uh, shots of, of the Roger estate. Um, would a piano be able to play that loudly? Yeah, so here's the thing I want to highlight to you, just to sort of... Because you've already brought up one thing I was going to bring up, which is the scale of the house, right? We're talking like a full full on suite here at the minimum, if not like they own the entire tower, probably. But the thing I would stress is that um, the, the, like the piano that you would have seen in my childhood home or the one that I have currently in my home, those are baby grand pianos. Now you're seeing a baby grand piano. You're familiar with the uh, the fact that you can you can lift the lid off on a hinge, and right. that's a, that's a functional thing. That you know, of course, because it, by keeping the lid down, you're keeping it quieter. And usually, I just have the lid down all the time because I don't need it to really ring throughout. But you know, the part of the idea is that the piano is actually supposed to be a directional instrument. That if you were playing for an audience and you had the power to move the piano. You would open the lid, and then the direction, you know, much in the same way that, I don't know, maybe you would, like, open oh. a, a, an oyster or clam towards, you know, whoever wanted to see the pearl. You know, you would open the clam shell in the direction of whoever's the audience. You're huh. going to you're gonna open the piano in the direction of your audience uh, because that's where you want to project the sound. And so I already – but it, so there's the directional quality of it. It gets louder when you open the lid, and in all the scenes, the lid is open. Uh, but the other thing I would stress too is that it's pretty clear. Of course, in the Big O, we've already talked last episode about how everything's dimensions are huge. The car right. is huge. The buildings are huge. Caverns are huge. Uh, the piano, the piano is huge. And I should stress that when you go to, if you go to an orchestra concert and they do a piano concerto. The piano they're going to be using there is a full grand piano. Uh, baby grands are typically sort of folded in on themselves a few times to get that more compact shape. Uh, a grand piano will be stretched out longer like the one that we do see uh, that Dorothy plays on. Uh, and that thing is way fucking louder. <laughs> like, okay. I, right. I, I never really performed on a grand piano on stage, but I, I ran, uh, I was part of house management in my, in my undergraduate days. And so I would be responsible for moving the piano and making sure nothing was wrong with it. Um, and I can tell you, those things are real loud. They're way louder. And also, to the acoustics. You know, again, it's big room, right? And that, the sound's going to travel unimpeded further. So I, the answer is, as like, and, and lastly, it is worth mentioning that Dorothy is an android. And she can probably play as loud as possible because she can. She physically can just keep doing it. See, I was going to joke about that, right? Like, I was going to joke. If you were about to tell me, like, no, motherfucker, the fucking pianos can't play this loud. If you if you were about to tell me that, I was going to be like, I guess then what she's doing is using her fucking mandroid strength to slam those keys as hard as possible. <laughs> and that's how she's rocking this house. I mean, she's it's all the above, really. Like, it's, it's an instrument with the capacity to play that loud, but also 
she can play that loud like at consistently right it's you know she can play she can do whatever and it can probably be that loud gentlemen uh, i ask you I, I bring you together to ask you this question it is it is fucking delightful that dorothy tortures roger correct yes this is this is wonderful <laughs> Stephen, did you have any thoughts about their their? I don't want to call it domestic life right now, but the but the way that we're sort of introduced to Roger's circumstances through the, kind of like sitcom hijinks. I actually like them because it, it it makes them a little bit more relatable, and I think their interactions are cute. Again, this isn't a criticism, but right now, as of episode two, these are rather two dimensional characters, so these moments do help flesh them out a little bit more. Not to change subjects, but one thing I want to get to real quick before we move further in the episode is we finally get a taste of the Big O opening in this episode. Oh, yes. I did skip over it because I don't like it very much. <laughs> Which one? Wait, Both? Yes. Well, yeah, wait, here. We have to have a discussion about this because I, I think we touched on this maybe like in passing in our first oh. episode, but we didn't quite appreciate that there exist two OPs. Uh, Steven, do you have do you know the why this is? Did you look into this at all? Or? Yeah, so technically if you take the 26 episodes of Big O, that would be season one and season two, as a complete work, there are three OPs. Season one has the um, Rui Nagai composed a piece of music called Big O! Exclamation mark, uh, clearly inspired by Queen's Flash Gordon theme, and that plays in season one. Season 2 has another opening, and then when they re-aired Season 1 on an, a channel in Japan called... Uh, Animax. Animax. Um, they re-recorded a new opening with the visuals from opening number 2 called The Show Must Go On. And I know Ignis said he's watching from the Blu-ray. I'm also watching from the Blu-ray, but I have another cut of it with the Flash Gordon-esque theme. And that opening of course has the second opening the third opening i guess has different lyrics and which lyrics that would be different from when we watched it on cartoon network and adult swim all those years ago uh real quick i guess it would make sense to wait until episode three to like deploy the opening just because you know time is a a precious commodity when you're introducing a show so you want to use all of those 23 24 minutes you have available to flesh out the world and introduce these characters i'm i'm with ignis i'm not the biggest fan the Flash Gordon theme is memorable just because it's so simple, uh, but the visuals are look very cheap looking in the background. Oh, just to be specific, um, the one I don't like is the show must go on. I, I, I don't like the Animax re-release intro that, you know, we, we, we surmised or, or we were guessing last time that the reason that, that this probably happened was was because of how similar... The original season one Flash Gordon, you know, what I would refer to as the Digimon Garlic Champions version of the intro song. Like, I like that one. There's there's something that is... Okay, so th- this uh, Big O, and I'm going to talk about it some more later because of a, of, uh, a new weapon we see in this episode... Uh, Big O is is really to me invoking a, because of its scale more of a old school Ultraman vibe than not, and there's something to me about that Flash Gordon very sh- like simple. It, it reminds me actually of a kind of like what if you did the um, uh, Adam West Batman intro serious? Like mm-hmm. what if it was a straight version of that? Um, or if it was like you know to invoke something else like Dick Tracy, right? Like that's that's the other thing that it reminds me of. Um, this is like the show must go on. Do you want to talk about that? I don't know. Do we should we talk about this now or should we wait to talk about this in the? No, I guess we could talk about this now, right? Because people who would be watching on Verve, I think, are getting the show must go on. That's right. I I had watched the first few episodes on uh, the uh, watch VRV Verve, and uh, and they were using that particular OP. 
So yeah, I mean, what I would say is that it, it is um it is not a uh, it doesn't seem like it's mostly original animation. It seems like it's clips from the show, um, and so you can definitely tell when it's hand drawn '90s versus like the the later 2000s series where it's a little bit cleaner, a little bit you know smoother lines and stuff like that. And the Big O's weaponry gets more and more advanced. Uh, I don't want to call anything specific out here just because I think it's I think it's a uh, pretty carefully thought out how we see the big o's weapons like doled out this is something i I was referring to in the in the previous episode so you know we do get to talk about uh uh, an etano circus today at some point but uh that's that's for the next episode i think unless i dreamed that we'll we'll see um the before moving on from the the intro in the house one thing i was curious about was the um there's this bit where uh during the breakfast uh, uh which is a, a pretty decent version of like drawn scrambled eggs i've seen scrambled eggs represented before and i and i feel like there's this tendency and maybe this is just because my preference for scrambled eggs is that they be cooked more and drier i know people like runny scrambled eggs but i am i am not that person i, I prefer mine more firm and i know that's that's more of an omelet but uh, but food people please don't at me please leave me alone <laughs> specifically coco um the 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 thing that I, I wanted to highlight here is how um dorothy is doing her um her beep boop shit when she's drinking the tea it's, i read that as making fun of roger right I read that as Roger is constantly in this episode sort of poking fun at Dorothy for quote unquote like mimicking human behavior, right? And and that moment prompts him to again criticize that or at least point it out, right? Um, I was curious that did you guys what did you guys think of of this bit? Like any time where they are like emphasizing her robotic nature, do you do you think that's something that that Dorothy is doing, or do you think the text is doing that to remind us of of what she is? Since visually she looks you know like an anime girl i think this might be a service level observation but i think this is the animators going out of the way to remind possible or potential new viewers that hey andrew i mean uh dorothy isn't quite like roger especially if they're jumping in for the first time the one note i did have was just the whoever worked on this scene animation wise it's great like her stilted and robotic movements like as she sips her coffee very like methodically are very convincingly animated I wish I could call out the particular animator who did it, but I couldn't find it. Um, I Real also, quick, B- okay. Oh no, go ahead, BMC. Sorry. I was just going to say I do feel that she is sort of. Um, she seems to have a certain enjoyment in making Roger uncomfortable, which is good because, as we already mentioned, she he deserves it. And I, I definitely have to wonder to what extent she is sometimes encouraged to do wacky things uh, in these two episodes on account of that, <laughs> just to sort of screw with him. I don't know how much that's texted or me imposing it, but it definitely feels like that. By the end of episode four, she's like, you know what? Let's just go fucking bonkers. Oh, yeah. We're going to have a conversation about uh, episode four, Dorothy's uh, actions in particular. Um, Steven, remind me, what is the name of the writer? Chiaki? Is that his name? Chiaki Konaka. Yeah. Uh, Chiaki Konaka is the person who... Uh, fleshed out Dorothy. That, that Dorothy's original concept was just the android girl who lived with Roger, right? And it was Chiaki who who filled in the blanks. And and I feel that in these two episodes, uh, it, there is especially in four when we I, I know we're we're all kind of itching to get to four, um, but in in this episode with these moments where I, I can't help but think of him in these moments where we're the the robotic nature is being emphasized and we're we're having conversations about like you know 
can she feel feelings essentially and 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 so i was curious how it came off i'm i for me i I feel like there's this like uh i don't want to say aggressive nature to her but she she feels like she kind of defines herself in opposition to roger sometimes in in a way that like i think you can choose to see as either sort of like a sibling behavior or even if you want to like like sort of romantic behavior in the way that sometimes you you see like an opposites attract sort of situation um i do have an embarrassing confession to make real quick before i continue with any more uh uh, fun critique if if you guys don't mind please go for Uh, it so so obviously um uh we you know roger rocks into the scene and he refers to her as uh, our dorothy wainwright uh which is our full name right um, and as the series continues, Stephen J. Bloom in the dub particularly will refer to Dorothy as our Dorothy, right? Um, now, uh, would it could would it would it surprise either of you to learn that I didn't realize the the R was R as in the letter R, and I thought he was saying our Dorothy, O U R, as in all of our Dorothy, and, and it's sort of like how do I put this like a purple prose sort of way yeah, to refer yeah. to? I could and, see that. And, and and so for me here, I'm I'm like reading the R in Dorothy stands for robot, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm a fucking moron. I, <laughs> I think I, I made that mistake too. I didn't I didn't I, interrogate it as critically as you did. I just took it for granted. But I think I, my, that was my interpretation when first watching it too. I just like our Dorothy better. Like I, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and be like, um, I I, I the Ignis script is superior. But I I feel like I the, yeah, that, that's the stage play version of yeah, of the Big O. Real. Our Dorothy. Please. Fun, I would... fun fact, he actually did write a stage play. You can find the translation on Kanaka's website. And it's actually interesting that Ignis brings that up because, as if you remember from the history, Kanaka and Sunrise, they brought in a team of writers, but Kanaka really penned the script for the first four episodes. So when we get to next week's episode, where we cover episodes five and six, uh, we'll see some maybe some changes in the writing. I'm not sure I haven't watched the episodes yet, but that's something to possibly keep an eye out for. All right. While we're on the while we're on textual beats here and asking like what what is the text, I have a I have a problem in this episode Electric City that I need to deal with because the premise of the episode as is it learned, a yes oh I'm sorry is it a nuwa problem or is it a no, uh, it's, uh, all the all the nuwa stuff is fine <laughs> the the, the, <laughs> the problem is that the premise of the episode right is that Angel under the under the name Casey Jenkins shows up and says you may have noticed we have electrical problems do you know where we get our electricity from well too bad because I'm not fucking telling you yeah no one knows <laughs> <laughs> we, we want you we want you to go and uh, talk to these damn people about their damn damn and get us some electricity and at the end of the episode uh Roger just explode after killing the monster that's causing problems. While they, the, after he kills the monster, that is the reason they don't turn on the da- on the dam. He then destroys the dam. Yep, he sure does. <laughs> yeah, that seemed a bit uh, gratuitous. So do they? Are they? What? So the electricity is still bad. So it's so you, uh, PMC. I'm very happy to have you bring this up. I, this is I hate to bring up like I this this feels like so close to bad nitpicking, but it's also so, driving me insane because it feels like it's like basic flow of the action, and I need to say something to know that I'm not crazy. No, no, no. I'm honestly this is not <laughs> one of those. This is I would say to you that this mm-hmm. is not a second moon hidden yeah. in Earth's orbit situation. <laughs> this is that very is bothersome much, though. This is, there is this is very much a 
um, a, an episode where if if you break down the plot and what is happening in a straightforward way, I do not think you will be satisfied <laughs> like with with the way it goes. I don't think it's that kind of story. Right. I, I agree. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 one thing I noticed, too, like Kanaka just gives us enough information to make sure that there is a plot that moves forward, but never enough where I'm satisfied, where I have a complete comprehension of what is going on to the point where this is the first show I've had to watch where almost as a mental game, it might come up on the pod. And I think everyone will have a different interpretation of it. And I'll remember I'll forget these small little beats. I will have to at the end of my notes, write what I see as the episode outline and my interpretation of what should be very quotidian. I move from point A to point B plot beats or like biographical details, which really get muddled in the episode's proceedings. And I think it's worth pointing out that I view this as largely kind of intentional and it's a highlighted that way. Roger, Roger's, Roger's bits at the end of episodes often highlight it or or especially at the end, I think it was episode two where he's like, what even was Soldano's deal? I don't know. You know, yeah, and I, I take that as like my guiding thesis through this show is why I want. I don't use that as like a cudgel to criticize the show because right. I think the show excels in having uh, an enigmatic quality to it, where I could have fun guessing. Not that that's what I do in my spare time, but I have that ability to do that. Gentlemen, we must also not be so hasty as to overlook the fact that uh, Dorothy's disc tray, when open, has an internal light. And that internal light is bright as fuck. Like, that looks way too bright. It's so funny because I feel like it looks like a, like an optical media disc drive. Um, I, I know that that particular thing came up when she was disconnected from, from Bigger Dorothy in, in right. episode two. But also, like, the, the light very much feels like a refrigerator light. Like, that's yes. the quality of light we're talking about, illuminating a dark room with this, like, one offhand light inside something. It's it was it's a good bit. It's a it's a fun bit of um, I, I think, you know, especially when in the conversation of are the robotic movements and the, the meat morph that she's doing with drinking the tea. Is that sort of something she's doing on purpose to make Roger uncomfortable? You know, the this I think is kind of a follow up to that where you could argue, you know, that this is kind of the this, uh, evidence against that. Right. Because, you know, I think here this is not her being like. Uh, is my obvious robotness making you uncomfortable? It seems more like a naive, like, here, th- <laughs> is this helpful? <laughs> and, you know, I don't mean naive in a critical way. It's fun. It's great. Rod, uh, uh, Dorothy is the best. Our Dorothy is very fun. Um, Speaking uh, of that one point that PMC brought up, though, is when Casey says, do you know where electricity comes from? There is that very subtle, natural, understated transition to the title card and the, yes. the illumination, which I thought was great. Since you brought up KC Jenkins. Yeah, are you going to say the magic words? <laughs> no, say it. I, say I it. Don't think, I don't think I'm going to say any magic words. Although I'm, I actually, PMC, I confess, I'm not sure I know what you're referring to. Okay, I'm just referring to the fact that we're, we already talked about Noah. And oh, so, true. You know, it's, I think, important to identify that uh, from here on out, uh, Casey Jenkins, uh, aka Angel, will be our femme fatale. Oh, those magic words! Yes, I was going to invoke that that particular phrase. So, our our here we are introduced to Angel, uh, one of the the I think in my memory memory of Big O, a a very important character to the proceedings. Uh, Angel or, or Casey Jenkins is voiced by Wendy Lee, and Wendy Lee is a 
Uh, legend, I guess, is is not too bold a statement when it comes to voice acting. She has been around forever and has been in a million things. I know exactly why she was cast in this role. Uh, because, obviously, she is the voice of Faye Valentine in Cowboy Bebop. And so this this sort of role would be something not only is she kind of able to do since since Faye is sort of kind of in name the femme fatale of of, of Cowboy Bebop kind of sort you know she's playing with those signifiers anyway, um, uh, uh, you know and and that's fine and I think something that's interesting about Wendy Lee is great and she's great as Angel. Something that's crazy about this for me is that I can't... It's funny, and I don't know if she's doing this to differentiate it from Faye, but it sounds less like Faye Valentine to me. And unfortunately, it sounds like TK from Digimon is trying to be sexy at me. And, and I'm, it, it is very... You know, she's she's fine. I'm able to put this aside, but I, I there was a moment where I was like, why does Faye sound more like TK than Faye? Uh, that's, like a, that's a Google search I never want to make. <laughs> Oh no! Don't don't do yeah, that. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I really am not. Like, please, I'm my recommendation. Anyone listening, don't do it. <laughs> um, but yeah, Angel is is in the in the proud tradition of Nua. A a a femme fatale would refer to a a character who is. I, so uh, one thing that's I think is important about a femme fatale is that there there are sort of two flavors of it in a sort of Lynchian sense, right? There is the the signifiers of and of a you know not to, to put too fine a point on it of an angelic nature like like fair hair, fair skin, innocence, you know, white dresses, you know, uh, 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 you know, a, a sort of humility, a lack of sexuality, who who has like a sort of innocence that needs to be protected, and then uh, is revealed to be you know actually covering up some kind of dark secret. That's that's sort of endemic to Nua. Uh, and then there's the the more well known or like like uh uh how do i put this uh, uh engaged no the one that you see more often is more what i mean which is the the dangerous sexy sort of uh uh, uh vivacious and temptu- temptatious you know or temptress i guess is the way i would put it um angel seems to be p- playing off of like a kind of mix of that where she shows up as one and reveals herself to be the other. Uh, she's got a real Fujiko mine sort of energy to her, especially when we see her uh, in her, like, I guess you'd call it a sneaking suit. Um, uh, Roger's got a kept you waiting, huh, uh, in, in one of these episodes. And I was like, hey, hey now, you're a rock star. <laughs> um, let's see. You know, okay, so let's go back, uh, or not go back, let's go forward to Electric City, um, uh, Steven, you, you called out the, the sort of uh, fun transition, right? And, and the reason you called that out is, is because the, the implication is that when Angel asks, or I'm sorry, Casey Jenkins <laughs> asks if, you know, you, we know where the electricity comes from. We, the audience, have no fucking idea. We, and, you know, in a normal show, we wouldn't be called to even consider it, right? Like it, in fucking RX-78G Gundam, you, you don't ask how the White Castle has any electricity, right? I'm, it might come up in an episode that I'm not thinking of, but I, I don't remember in particular. Um, you know, and for them to call it out like this, you start to go like, okay, yeah, so, you know, the implication with the event wiping out everyone's memory would be that there would be a whole bunch of skill-based jobs that would be harder to do. And we do have a line in episode one, I believe, where, where Roger is like, you know, we figured out how electricity works and we, we just kind of fucking went from there. Um, and so that line is like, okay, we're going to find out. And Roger tells us, he's like, okay, there's a part of town where the electric plant is. So we call that Electric City. 
the end. <laughs> and so what's interesting about this explanation is that it, it while it is an explanation, it doesn't it doesn't tell us anything, right? Like it doesn't actually tell us, you know, uh, so the rest of it is Electric City. And like there's a part of me that pictures the Trigun plants, right? You remember those giant fucking light bulbs? Like, yeah. that's Electric City. <laughs> you know? Um, there's also a terrible part of my brain that thinks of old Circuit City ads, where the Circuit City buildings were giant, like, plugs that they would plug into the fucking ground. That's Electric City right there. <laughs> Sounds like uh, a Mega in- Man level. <laughs> no, for real. Um, there's In the moment where Roger arrives, uh, he, is, he is confronted by the locals. And the locals don't... So, uh, you know, we've talked about signifiers when it comes to, like, crowds before, when, when we spoke about uh, Tengentapa Gurren Lagann. Um, in, in the second half of Tengentapa Gurren Lagann, uh, the citizenry is represented usually in, like, a huge ornery group, right? Like, it's like a, a faceless mob of, of, of anger, right, in Tengentapa Gurren Lagann because of the things that happen in the show. Please listen to those episodes. Tengentapa Gurren Lagann's a good show. Um, here, there's, like, a more... Like, they're suspicious... But they look like, I don't know, they just kind of look like they went to Alaska. You know, they just stopped at a town in Alaska or Canada. And, and everyone in, in, in town was just sort of like, hey, who's this fancy, his, this dapper lad? But what's interesting is that we don't, we're not privy to the conversation that Roger has with the locals. He just talks to a guy who seems to know Secret Agent Grandpa. Um, the, the main mustache man who we see who's like, you may think of us as primitives. And then that's it. That's that's all we. Hear from. Yeah, that seemed like a really odd cut, just because he was being held at gunpoint, right? Just like a moment before. Well, it's so so something that we've learned about Roger here is that, uh, and I don't know if he says it the first time some armed people come up to him from behind with a gun and hold him up, or is, if if it's the second time when uh, Secret Agent Grandpa bops him good. It's the Grandpa. Uh, oh, Secret Agent Grandpa. So he 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 tells us that he doesn't carry guns, basically. Like he doesn't. He doesn't believe firearms are gentlemanly. This is definitely like a a mix of um, the Batman gun trauma logic and the uh, you know a sort of like reverse James Bond license to kill situation, right? Like the the, the sort of and PMC, you can correct me. Uh, the sort of point with the license to kill almost is is that like that sort of person who would actually use that sort of license is is very far gone. And I'm speaking to like the like intended text of James Bond, not necessarily the movie franchise, you know, like that, 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 that James Bond, the man is like, and that's what Daniel Craig's James Bond, I think is speaking to is like a, a, a dude so far gone that, that, that morality just doesn't like even apply to him anymore. And like that sort of burden is an enormous one and one that basically corrupts him. I, I think that's a very uh, generous read to James Bond. Do you think that's unfair? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that's, I think it's about, about right i because one of the other things too with with james bond as a character is that it's it's now for better or worse become generational with all the 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 warts and right smoothing and and washing that that entails um but i i think you i think you're you're about right especially as it relates to the the modern portrayal right i i'm mostly what i'm pointing out is that there's a that that like active uh um uh, dismissal of of guns as a means to solve the issue paints Roger as someone who is vulnerable, right? And he continues to be vulnerable in. And I'm not saying this to criticize it. I'm not saying like you idiot, just <laughs> like, carry a gun, you dummy. Yeah, we're your 16 Uzis. Haven't you seen the Matrix yet? It came out this year. 
Um, no, it's it's yeah. app that you bring up, uh, like Roger. Oh, I really uh, thought Steven was about to say no. I haven't seen The Matrix. <laughs> uh, no, maybe we'll record a pod on my inevitably watch it. But I would fucking love to do that. I, I do plan on uh, on finally crossing that Rubicon one of these days because I know I'll really like it. But anyway, uh, we're talking about Roger's characters. We he has his uh, one of his many PI monologues when he first uh, gets the job, and it does point out a few interesting things about his character and world building. The first is that he doesn't take any jobs from Paradigm, which we know from, of course, from episode four, which is like the Shinra-like corporation that basically controls the city. So he right. he has, we may have to make some inferences, but he probably doesn't agree with their practices. So he has, he acts with some sort of moral compul- compul- compunction. And uh, we learn too that there seems to be, you know, this is a very stratified society. We have the rich living in these very protected domes, while the poor underclass waste away in these in these hinterland regions like Electric City. I, I, it, I think it's it's wise for you to bring up the the paradigm thing, which we did kind of miss because you're right. The the um, the Roger Smith uh, PI segments where he narrates over the early parts of the episode are delightful. I I have criticisms about uh, you know I I it's it's become like a joke how I am sort of adversarial about Stephen J Bloom and and I do think especially in episode four I have questions about some some choices but uh, I think he's really good at these segments it seems like he really gets what he's supposed to be going for with Roger in these particular beats and I and I like I I would want to hear him narrate whatever I'm doing basically. It it really helps create a sense of place to Paradigm City. Mm. Like Paradigm City is such a dark and like miserable seeming actual locale. But for I, I, I find myself wanting to stay in it when I watch Big O. Like there's there is a definite like Rob Zachney, you know, I'm gonna get my big coat and take a huge drag off this cigarette and really think about my where I live in existence why I'm, you know, walking up to this job that I don't wanna do, right? Like there's that 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 sense of just weight to things that, that you know, don't get well explained. And and in a way that really could be like a huge detriment to other kinds of shows, right? Like you know we're 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 kind of jumping around here but the the fact that that Roger doesn't really go into his issues with paradigm on one hand is like uh, almost like a cheat right like you could definitely make some inferences there but on the other there's there's the issue of like maybe he doesn't know he he might not know why he doesn't take jobs from paradigm <laughs> like it just might be something he understands is part of his approach that he doesn't necessarily know the reasoning towards now i i understand that there's only so much we can really you know credit the text with doing that intentionally right that, that that's going to be a, something that you you just sort of take for granted as you go uh, but that's something i'm i'm always keeping in the back of my mind when it comes to things like this right like like when the citizenry explain for example to uh uh a roger that there's a there's a lightning god right and that if if you turn on the fucking generator, the lightning god's going to show up, and that sucks, right? Because no one likes Raiden for Mortal Kombat, and he's just going to be miserable. Um, that there's there's an aspect there where Roger, because because later Roger isn't like he he is like well that seems silly. <laughs> later he is like reflecting, but what it really makes him do, and this is a classic sort of like hard-boiled detective sort of thing is that instead of like like reflecting on man those these these fucking uh podunk you know people out here in in electric city he he starts thinking about his his beliefs right he's talking about how 
he he does you know he is not he doesn't describe himself as an atheist but he doesn't necessarily believe those guys um and i wondered how much of it has to do with you know he doesn't i don't think regard the the mega deuses as divine in that regard like he and i don't think that he's saying that here when he's talking about the his reaction to hearing about the lightning god from the locals which is just what i'm calling it that that's clear right that the shorthand for the local god and stuff like that yeah because mm-hmm. i do you know if this this kaiju is named eel all right yeah i like local god i'm gonna go with lightning god or local god then uh you know i i assume here that there is a not necessarily an explanation for the kaiju. I don't necessarily need that. But when when the locals tell him about the 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 lightning god, and he's kind of dismissive about it, I imagine this is a sort of this is not a typical sort of critique about you know people from outsiders coming and and you know interfering with local lore or local or community or like efforts and stuff like that. And I was wondering how much of that was. Did you guys come away with that from this episode? Do you feel like that there is a sort of like there's a sort of dances with wolves going on in this episode weirdly where uh instead of like bringing culture or something to Electric City, like he he brings a real god to Electric City. Like he he doesn't bring like salvation from or he doesn't bring electricity back he brings salvation from electricity <laughs> and like that's that's the weird part about the the destruction of the the generator and how everyone in the city appears like like yay <laughs> you know like wow look at our city it used to be like this and now it can't be like that anymore <laughs> because roger smith blew the fuck up with his cool laser beam um, okay, maybe I'm jumping ahead. Maybe we, we should, there are other things to consider there, but, but do you feel like there is an, an element of the, the world building that's occurring here that is sort of like, do you think that the way that they, I don't want to say cut corners because that, that sort of assigns more of a, a cheapness or a trying to get around the hard work that I don't think this show is doing. Do you think the way that it's not necessarily concerned with the fine details is to its benefit or no? I think it helps, and the reason I would I would say that is because in the first two episodes, I think we're given a portrait of a of a functioning city that's in decay, uh, whereas here with Electric City is you know it's a different outcome in the terms that it feels like people living in ruins more than a city in decay, mm. um, and so I think that that contrast works and appears well enough for me because i think the i I think you're right to bring up that idea that dances with wolves idea because it's like we're gonna the outsiders are gonna come in they're gonna be better at electricity than like electric city right serves you right um but i feel like the the emphasis here is you know all the shows about you know fear of the unknown is what we'll definitely get to soon. But I think here that that fear of the unknown is really centered on the people living in the ruins of Electric City because they really it, it's a clear from their astonishment at the end that they don't know you know what it was like you know that right. for them it's it's a legend uh, you know much in the same way that the the eel is a, is a god of wrath uh, the idea of Electric City the uh, you know uh, resplendent. Um, you know, city on the hill, literally, uh, is yeah. You know, that, that's also a legend as well for them. 
Yeah, I think it definitely works to the show's benefit. I've gone on record with our first podcast episode saying that I think Big O's strength lies predominantly in its aesthetic qualities and in creating a very specific atmosphere. And by filling in those blanks, we're, we can marinate in that atmosphere because most of the scenes occur with some moody music in the background and Roger, not pontificating, but, you know, kind of walking us through some of the beats. But if you become very didactic and start filling in some of those blanks, you lose that, not only that sense of mystery, which we talked about, but the, that very atmospheric quality, too, which I think overwhelmingly for me is the strength of the show. Right. I agree. I think I- overall... Oh, go ahead. sorry. Go ahead. I have one very cynical take because I might have uh, like 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 uh, what is the Gandalf Sand Fellowship of the Ring like or no Saruman says you know you dug too deep. I might have dug too deep with my history. I might know a little too much because I have a feeling that a lot of these references to Roger's religion is for a very specific world building purpose, and that is to prove that or solidify the fact that Paradigm City exists somewhere in the Western Hemisphere, probably in America. That's my big brain theory, big brain take, but I might have read too much, so I really can't call it my own, implying that maybe Roger is Christian and this paradigm city is New York City. I guess we'll find out when we eventually get to Big O Part 2. Oh, yeah. I don't... See, mm, eh, I... Mm, <laughs> maybe see, you guys funny. know more than I do. Well, so it's funny because I do and don't, right? Because there are big picture things that I remember. There's there's very, very big picture things that I remember. But I, I don't remember how much individual things matter. So, so like, especially this early on, I'm, I'm very much trying to take each episode as they are uh, and, and trying to keep put aside the things that I know. Like, for example, you know, uh, Roger in the scene we hear after he meets the locals... Uh, he is he is attempting to climb. It looks like some kind of like like hilly or mountainous area that, that is colder than we've seen the other areas of Paradigm City to be. Like you know, again, I immediately thought of either like a, like Alaska or Canada, that that sort of landscape. Uh, you know, there are episodes of X Men where where uh, Wolverine goes to Alaska or, or Canada, and it looks like this. But in any case. Uh, here, uh, he is complaining about, uh, not having our Dorothy with him and, and he combs his hair in a cool way, uh, because I, <laughs> I suspect it's because he was thinking of a girl <laughs> and, and like, uh, the, the jets or the sharks or something, he has to comb his hair to make sure he looks cool while he's thinking of a girl. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I obviously this is, I think, it, just to give him a bit of business to be doing in this like uh, animation frame and to remind us that Roger Smith is cool. Uh, but it made me think of, you know, uh, previously I, I joked about, or not joked about, I brought up that I thought that there was possibly a third Dorothy involved in, in you know, the, the, the plotting of, of the first two episodes. And I was thinking about here in this episode how Dorothy is so absent. And I was wondering if that was because of the actions of the third Dorothy, but the, but the episode plays out and there's nothing else to suggest that. So I'm, I'm just keeping an eye out for Shadow Dorothy. I just wanted to remind you guys, I'm, 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 I'm checking the notes, you know, I'm, I'm following all the clues there. You've got your own uh, PI monologue right there. <laughs> um, Hot on but, the trail uh, of third Dorothy. <laughs> Listen, Shadow Dorothy thinks she's got us all fooled, but but I've been able to, but you know, connect. Sounds these like dots. the worst Persona Four character, Shadow Dorothy. <laughs> I mean, it would definitely not be a thing that wouldn't be in Persona, just because of the Wizard of Oz reference that's going on with Dorothy in the first place. Um, 
But uh, it, here we see Roger is once again <laughs> he is he is uh, subdued because he is uh, essentially choosing to present himself as defenseless. You know, he, we we spoke of course about how he doesn't uh, carry a firearm, but like he's got he's got gizmos, right? Like he, we we can assume that probably he could have done something here. And, and the reason I say that is because in the scene where he's being interrogated by secret agent grandpa uh roger reveals uh by helping to carry the buckets that that he could have chosen to escape his bondage at any time joining the long line of protagonists who despite being captured or taken in could choose to escape and thus demonstrating their magnanimity and their nobility you know like Kamina and, and Tengen Tapa Gurren Lagann I, I feel like we've seen this in other things as well like I, I think even in um Oh boy, what's the show that the um, the Hollands were from? Genlock. <laughs> Genlock. Genlock. <laughs> I'm not the only one. Careful, if you say that it's too many times, Genlock season two will happen. Watch yeah, out. Exactly. It's funny, um, like the citizens of Paradigm City, we experience retrograde amnesia when we're thinking about Genlock. It's very okay. apropos. But Gen- in Genlock, there are some beats where Michael B. Jordan's character were- was able to sort of circumvent... Uh, expectation because of his nature as a hologram and and that sort of stuff can happen with protagonists right uh, to sort of you know uh here it just shows us how roger is uh, i mean it, i think it's also meant to be endearing him to uh, secret agent grandpa uh but it, it shows us how you know I, I think they were concerned about him getting punked so many times in a row. Um, this is something that that can, you know, not to bring up James Bond again, but I think this is something that happens in James Bond often, is that despite being a, a the top secret agent in all of the world, like James Bond needs to get clowned on in order to make the next set piece happen, right? So Literally every, every, ep, every film he must get captured, like at least once to get a tour of the Big Bad's facility. It's required. Right. And, and you know, as a storyteller, this this presents you with with issues, right? On one hand, you can, you know, there's there's like a sort of hackiness to just sort of following through with the steps. On the other hand, if there's a thing you're trying to do, a point you're trying to make, you, you sometimes just have to do it. And it's about trusting the the writer there, right, or the the creator or what have you. Um, with Roger here, I think it's effective. I think it works. I, I think it effectively, you know, we we are hard on Roger because he's a dink, but you know, he's he definitely appears to be have his heart in the right place. Like the the other way you can tell this is, you know, the the scrambled eggs from earlier; those were set up scrambled eggs, and here here we have payoff scrambled eggs hmm. because uh, Norman de- or I'm sorry, uh, Roger demonstrating his ability to cook a. a decent breakfast without norman sort of demonstrates how he's like despite having uh a a butler in his home like he has these skills like he can serve himself he can make his own food there there are other things where uh, there would be a like a a signifier regarding roger's like sort of i don't want to say corruption but like sort of lack of life experience because of his his disconnect because of his privilege right where uh, he wouldn't be able to make something so simple as scrambled eggs. I'm not. I'm, I'm not calling anyone out <laughs> for not making, being able to make scrambled eggs. I'm just saying that his ability to cook here struck me. I, I know that that's kind of a small detail comparatively, but this was just something that jumped out for me. Yeah, no, uh, I think I, I agree with that detail. I was like, oh yeah, he can do it. He can do the thing. He's got. He's got the skills. Did you notice he got all he got all cranky when fucking secret agent grandpa put some more salt on there? <laughs> I did. That was a nice touch. 
Another thing I really like about this scene is how peaceful it is. Like, I don't know if you, you gentlemen have ever chopped wood before, but it is super relaxing. Like, another Star Trek reference I make frequently is Star Trek Generations, and I very oh, much yeah. envy Kirk's, uh, like, nexus fantasy of just spending my life in the presence of these beautiful mountains chopping wood. So I, was very, I felt very much at home. <laughs> so See, whenever I, whenever I think of chopping wood scenes, I always think of, uh, of Tony Stark and, uh, and Steve Rogers. Was that, oh. was that the one? Because that's yes. that is not that is not tension free. <laughs> no, so um, that is Age of Ultron, uh, right. and uh, that one's excellent because of the that one is a really good like visual uh, set piece. I would say where we're making comparisons of. Oh man, that one's great. Where he fucking tears that walking hat like a phone book. <laughs> man, Chris Evans is a is a large man, a large gentleman. Um, no, but I, I think what's what's interesting about there are two things I want to know. One, I think it's very funny that Captain Kirk accidentally ended up in Stephen Hero's personal heaven. That's very funny to me. Stephen Hero's personal heaven of chopping wood and scrambled eggs. Yeah, well, <laughs> de- devoid of Kirk, I'm not the biggest Kirk proponent. But if I could be in that place too for eternity, there are worse ways to spend the rest of my life. Do you think Kirk showed up and he had like a Star Trek style battle with Stephen Hero to get that house? Da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking just booted Stephen Hero out. I'm um, sure. I'm second- sure he could take me. I'm sure Patrick. Well, I don't know. I don't know if uh, to say Patrick Stewart. I meant uh, Shatner. I don't. I don't know if I would rank my physical prowess against Shatner's. I wouldn't. I would just wouldn't want to fight. I just feel like no matter. <laughs> <laughs> like Alien vs. Predator, no matter who wins, we all lose uh, when I fight William Shatner. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, uh, the other thing I wanted to note was that uh, this whole shtick here where uh, Roger is, is like, you, you expect this sort of montage to have more elements to it where Roger is getting like closer to secret agent old man. But it's like, I'm going to carry some buckets. You're going to go out. I'm, I'm going to watch you chop wood. Like in a way that reminds me more of like a, like in a romantic novel when the uh, one romantic partner is inside watching the other romantic partner do something like, like masculine or attractive. Like that's the kind of vibe it gave me, even though that's not what it is. It was, it was Roger waiting for him to be like doing something else. But I was curious. I was like, well, I'm like, I'm fine with bisexual Roger. I'm okay with that. But like, I don't think that's what they're trying to I was going to save this tweet for later in the week, but it reminded me of the the mom watching their children open presents on Christmas morning, sipping their coffee meme. That's what it reminded me of when he's looking out the window, benignly sipping his coffee. <laughs> no. So now this has just brought my brain to that Folgers commercial with the brother and sister. Yeah, yeah, we're going to end up at the Folgers commercial, right? That's where we're going with this. <laughs> God. It really is the, uh, the big O Folgers commercial. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, this allows Roger uh, a, a, a moment to uh, escape away to that hidden facility he discovered before. Um, and within that hidden facility, uh, <laughs> this is okay. I don't. This is not a critique because it's it's I it's ultimately not that important. The specifics of what he finds in there are really not that important. He finds a secret lab, and it and it was doing some kind of secret lab stuff. And Secret Agent Grandpa wanted to keep people out of that secret lab, and Paradigm wanted to find that secret lab. So Paradigm sent Casey Jenkins to Roger Smith to recruit him in order to find the secret lab, and Angel would would uh, uh, therefore be able to find the secret lab by tailing Roger Smith, which we discover in this moment when Roger Smith discovers the 
uh, 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 discovers Angel rather in in the. I think this is in the moment where he discovers Angel in the hidden lab. Is this happening? Well, wait a second. Aren't we're, no? We're, I'm skipping the electricity. Okay. Yeah, there's two locations here, right? Because there is the there's the outside stairs which go to the dam, and then there right, are there's right. the inside facility, which is which I would call the secret lab because that's where like the the tank is and all the photos of of uh, of Secret Agent Grandpa. Right, Secret Agent Grandpa in his home. When Roger is lovingly watching him chop wood, he finds by tap dancing on a certain part of Secret Agent Grandpa's home a a secret compartment. This is the secret tunnel that leads to the lab I was referring to. Um, There is also the the walkway to the turbine, which is where Secret Agent Grandpa previously dispatched Roger. I was confusing those two things. PMC is correct. While Roger is looking at this lab, though, um, some like plasma... Electricity gets mad at Roger and tells him to leave. Um, <laughs> which well, that's is, because that's the moment when when uh, when Angel turns on the turbine, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and and that is when Roger realizes like someone turned something on, right? Uh, and I think he, I don't think he comes goes with Secret Agent Grandpa together to the turbine place. I think he goes alone. I don't know what yeah, Secret well, Agent Grandpa's doing. Well, it's because he tells he tells Secret. Well, he, at that point, he's figured out who Secret Agent Grandpa is, and he's he says, "Hey, I'm a professional at this. You're a professional oh, yes, researcher, right. so let me take care of this. You don't need to come along." Right. Right. Okay. All right. So. That is when he has the encounter with Femme Fatale flavor Angel, who who reveals herself as Angel, necessarily. Um, this is, especially in this sneaking suit, she has, like, assumed her true form as a noir Femme Fatale. Hmm. Uh, uh, I, I don't know, it's fine. You know, it is fine. As far as, like, I don't know, sexy cat suit designs go, it's not that bad. She she definitely, you know, she has a moment where she, she removes her glasses from her cleavage and stuff like that. Like, it's fine. I, I thought that Roger's line was, wasn't was great. I don't know if they were going for, like, a, a Roger Smith sort of, well, I've seen those curves before, you know, sort of thing, but it, it I don't know. I, I, I was, I didn't go and check the subs for, to see what the, the, the original script for it was, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was mostly the same. That's, that's the sort of thing Roger would say. Um, uh, in this moment, I, I guess I'm, hmm, I, did you guys feel like, I think it's unclear how much in the end Angel is like actively trying to in- instigate the 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 lightning god to do stuff and how much she knows that that it's going to occur when she turns on the turbines. I think that ends up being unclear by the end of the episode in in the final shot, you know, the, the way that she's communicating with something on a on a walkie-talkie like I think the the point of that is to make it, it it's sort of unclear what she was intending to accomplish here, right? Um yeah, my but, read was that she's a she's Working for Paradigm, and she, she was sent to retrieve a sample from the monster because Paradigm wants to use the monster to amplify their own electricity base. Right? I I see. I don't know if it's that even. I think you're right in a like broad sense of like that. Paradigm was looking to find Secret Agent Grandpa and this and this specific area that would allow them to activate the turbines. Whether the the uh electric monster and uh you know all that was like part of that plan i I think because i think the other aspect of this has less to do with electric city and the electric monster and secret agent grandpa and more to do with like a sort of and and we'll come back to this in episode four a cultivation of roger smith 
right? Like, like there's some there's some sort of like uh, uh, checking in and making sure he is like progressing that's going on with with Paradigm and and Roger Smith. Uh, I I don't and PMC. Please, you are the big O understander. <laughs> you can tell me if I am incorrect and I missed something more specific than that that Paradigm wanted. But I, my impression was that that, that there was a bigger scheme, Xanatos scheme here that that you know the that we are not meant to understand entirely by the end of this episode. You know that, and that there are smaller strokes that that we see concluded rather than larger. Is that is that incorrect? Yeah, I think I think that's the idea. I think the thing that's the most unclear is to what extent uh, Angel is merely a pawn versus sort of an active, uh, you know, participant in paradigm schemes. Because certainly Angel acts like she doesn't didn't know the monster thing would happen. Um, you know, she feigns that at least, and whether or not you know we take her at her word or not, you know, because it's you know it's outside the scope of a, of a 24 minute episode or whatever to explain exactly who from Paradigm got the sample from the monster or whatever. Like that's not you know that's not exactly. Um, so I you know I, I think I think it's definitely true that Paradigm has their fingers in many pots and that is unqu- it, it may it's definitely probably the case that Paradigm knew about the monster, uh, whether or not Angel did. I don't know. That's, yeah. That to me is the biggest question mark. Certainly, I, I think the the big picture being that paradigm was in on everything is pretty pretty much my read as well. I had a PMC moment during this action scene where the lightning god reveals itself uh, because the lightning god shoots some lightning at. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, there's this moment where Angel is passing Roger Smith, who's running, and she's like, "Beep beep." <laughs> out of my way motherfucker <laughs> oh, no, she she like slows down she's like hey you want to get something later if you yeah. live it's, it's, so, it's so disrespectful <laughs> um but then you know uh you know some some fate gets her with a a car stopping lightning bolt um you know it looks upsetting she seems upset when it happens but it doesn't seem to do much beyond that although i maybe her motor skills were affected because she does kind of eat shit when she opens the car door and like flops out in in the most undignified way possible which is fair because this this uh lightning god is is a spooky motherfucker um uh, this is the moment of course where uh Roger is forced to call the big o in order to to stop the lightning god uh the the way that everyone says mega Davis is terrible uh <laughs> we're not gonna get into it but i don't like it at all uh have either of you gentlemen seen the film godzilla versus biolante i remember you referencing it when we were talking about the godzilla pat labor episode i believe right, right? i yes. i recently ate a biolante themed hamburger from a restaurant a few weeks ago I'm jealous. I've been. Cra- I recently explained to someone that there's this weird recurring thing in mech shows where characters eat hamburgers on screen. That is the thing that continues to occur for some reason. Uh, and <laughs> I was finding uh, uh, screenshots of this thing occurring, and <laughs> we both concluded just like, damn, I want a hamburger now. I'm starving for some cheeseburgers. Uh, but in any case, moving on from this, this jughead shtick that I'm doing now. There is a uh, a moment here where uh, Roger is priming a, a new weapon that he calls out. Uh, what is it? The chrome shot? The the chrome cannon? Uh, chrome something, right? Chrome something. Chrome burst? Yeah, chrome. Oh, gosh. I noted it down in my research. Bear with me one sec. Because the reason I wanted to call it out uh, is, first off, there is a, a, this is an interesting thing that not, not all mech shows, not, not, that's not true. Mech shows 
you can kind of put into one box or the other, depending on its attitude towards like circumstantial destruction, right? Like, 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 uh, 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 what's the term? Oh, balls. Uh, like bystanders. Thank you, bystanders. Uh, uh, that get caught up in in the action because you know a, a lot of shows, and especially with with Big O, we've already seen when when uh the the Big O is called in. It's usually in an area where it, it, you know any destruction it causes isn't going to cause any harm, right? The harm it would be would be capital harm, right? It would be like to buildings and what have you and not lives you know like dustin he gets all mad about the the mega deus coming up through the ground specifically because it's damaging buildings and not because of anything else right mm-hmm. um uh uh and here when roger is charging his chrome buster that sounds right um yeah yeah uh, there is a, there's a moment where he see he witnesses secret agent grandpa who's row row rowing his boat gently across the stream over to the power plant for for reasons uh and and then there are two things that i think are cool here the first one is a a kind of obvious one of uh oh you know it's cool that the good guy is like uh, i don't want to use my gun it might hurt it might hurt someone uh that's cool uh the second thing is that the it kind of conveys the scope of the weapon without showing it to us it's a kind of interesting uh uh tell not show sort of situation because you know, uh, uh, we see uh, that the the uh, the lightning god is able to uh, produce an AT field and and block the PMC. Do you know what I mean? What I mean when I say that? Uh, yeah, is that a is that a, a Neva thing? Yeah, I just couldn't. Yeah. I can't. I couldn't. No, I, I shouldn't you. throw I out you. that sort of. <laughs> PMC drinks the LCL. He knows what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> oh no! But in any case, uh, the the uh, the punches are not enough. He's not going to be able to piston his way through this one. Uh, and so once uh, 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 Secret Agent Old Man is able to deactivate the turbines, which prevents the Lightning God from swallowing the big hole, a big, oh, fuck, the big O hole, um, <laughs> uh, which also allows him to use this new weapon. Now, the reason I invoke Godzilla versus Biollante is because there is a sequence in Godzilla versus Biollante, which is about a scientist who attempts to revive his daughter by combining the DNA of a rose with the DNA of Godzilla, um, it's long story. <laughs> um, uh, the Rhodes Godzilla hybrid monster. It's a Frankenstein story. Uh, uh, Stephen Hero, so you'd be into it. Uh, uh, attempts to at one point swallow Godzilla, um, and this is a mistake. Uh, trying to swallow Godzilla is is kind of archetypally a, <laughs> a sign that the fight is going to end because uh, Godzilla has a, a, a famous sort of uh, uh, sort of counter to this ability, which is to use his atomic breath. And usually what happens is a spectacular and, and gory explosion <laughs> of, of kaiju nonsense that, that Guillaume de Toro would, would clap in glee about. <laughs> uh, and the Godzilla vs. Biollante has this moment towards the end uh, where this almost this very shot is recreated. And the way that Godzilla defeats Biollante is that atomic breath weapon, and which is very much in the vein of what the Chrome Buster looks like. The other thing I wanted to call out with the Chrome Buster um, is how... So when it comes to uh, mech weapons and why I'm kind of on the super robot angle rather than the real robot angle is when it comes to real robots, you, you don't actually want the guns to be cool. Like the guns end up being cool kind of as a sort of cultural, you know, I, I, I guess I don't really have the time here to get into why the guns are cool when it comes to mechs. But but 
gen- you gentlemen, um, you know, fellow hosts of Mechanation, Steven Hero, and PMC Trilogy, you understand what I kind of mean by that, right? Where it's not that you're trying to make the most effective killing machine. It's just that aesthetically or in concept, those guns end up being adding to some kind of mystique factor to the the design or the overall idea of the machine. Is that fair? Yeah. Or, or like, even uh, potentially, right? Like, I'm not saying that's that's how we all feel. I'm saying, like, there are some people for, like, uh, I, they really like the heavy arms just because of the, the amount of weaponry on it. and Or, or they really like, uh, blah, blah, not necessarily Sazabi, because that one is a really interesting design. But, but no, but I like, think... Uh, what- what you're getting at is that sometimes this, sometimes the mech is really designed around the weapon. I think the one that I mean to think of is Metal Gear Rex. That it's really all about that real gun. You know, that's right. where that's where we at. And and on the other side of that is the super robot side, where the weapon is informed by some kind of outside logic, whether that's like a magic or alien technology or like Atlantis or spirituality or divinity, something to that effect. Um, the way that the Chrome Buster activates is that the uh, the Big O puts his hands up in a particular gesture, one at a time, brings them together in, in a cool sort of double punch, and when the fists come together, the laser shoots out of the brain in a way that is so memorable and wonderful, uh, it, it immediately invokes uh, uh, Ultraman. Ultraman ha- fires a, a laser weapon in a very similar gesture. It's it's not the same gesture. It's like half of what the Big O does. But like when you're watching, especially if you're a child, right? And th- there's something about a gesture and and the gesture leading to like the the sort of result of the 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 laser weapon and the the spectacle of the laser weapon that is so much more like impactful to me ignismatics than than like a big gun right and and that's what we're talking about this is a big gun but the way that the big o has to do a dance before it shoots the big gun makes it special and it and it adds a a character to the big o um it's not in this episode but in the next episode uh we might even hear roger referring to the big o in a in a way that will characterize it as a its own being in a way like he will ask the big o to do things and and that sort of way that the robot does a performance for us uh and in taking into account the questions of why dorothy would perform i, I think it are two very interesting ideas that are in this episode right like it, it's something that will be continued to expand upon in the next one um but i this this particular fight invokes a really good Godzilla feels like obviously that's what they're going for. We we talked about how uh, the Godzilla in the Shueisha era sort of informs Big O moving forward. But the way that the the music that where Big O is first coming and the uh, uh, contrasting him with the Lightning God, uh, you know, you read about the Big O, and one of the things that I think comes up a lot is that the Big O is not agile. Right, it is a lumbering giant sort of like very I, you someone could describe it as awkwardly shaped right someone could look at it and be like that looks like it's hard to move right um but i think what what is is missed when you describe it that way is that uh effectively that design like so captures the scale of the what it is right to the point where and the reason i bring this up is because we see the locals referring to this as like a black titan right they they see its silhouette battling the lightning god and you can suddenly understand 
why they would call it a lightning god and why they would see the mega deus as a black titan in the distance right even if you as an audience member understand like oh i know what giant robot and kyodai and you know mecha stuff is so i understand what i'm looking at here but you could see how the locals the community there who because they aren't privy to memories or money or you know access to this stuff they see this happen and they they see gods battling in on the horizon and and one victorious not only one victorious but one that lights up the sun and 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 brings back a, a city of yore you know and, and it's and you know big o doesn't stop and examine this necessarily we just move on right like electric city is is in the rearview mirror by the time we're we're back at you know the roger estate listening to uh dorothy and that's why they call it the <laughs> blues you know <laughs> um it, which it, i i think uh, the other thing that that's important Oh, and I'm sorry. I didn't miss anything you guys wanted to touch on in that encounter with uh, the Lightning God, right? I feel like I, I hit every beat there. Yeah, no, yeah. I think you pretty much covered it. There's one, um, one one satisfying thing when I'm taking notes is whenever I get to the end of an episode, like something like Big O, it's like I can kind of sit back and let the fight unfold. The Big O engages <laughs> in kaiju fight. The Big O dispatches the kaiju. Done. <laughs> I'll let Ignis, Ignis, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you were touching on something interesting about because I've been thinking about this idea because it comes up frequently viewing the mechs as gods just in general. And I think that is one of the things that is so inherently appealing about a lot of mecha design, especially these very large mechs, especially what we see in the Big O. I've talked about this b- before, but this romantic idea of the sublime, something that is both half terrifying and half pleasurable, standing on the top of a great precipice and looking, looking down and seeing just a great distance below you. You know, you, you fall, you'll kill yourself. But there's also something pleasurable about being on the top of something like a roller coaster. S- something similar looking at these very godlike machines. There's something very terrifying about looking at the big O. It can crush you without a moment's hesitation. But also, there's something otherworldly and godlike, which is somehow, somehow pleasurable looking on it. So I think that's cool, too. I, I think that's something that we're, we're definitely going to be touching on again, especially in our conversation mm. about underground terror which I think is going to be playing off of the opposite of what you're invoking here, yeah. where the, there is a, a like that serotonin rush of being at the, the top end of the roller coaster, knowing you're completely safe and about to take that dive, right? And, and enjoying that ride. And then the sort of opposite end of looking down into an abyss where you cannot know if you'll ever be safe <laughs> and, and having to confront that. Um, but in any case, uh, we haven't quite finished out because Dorothy is, of course, playing us out with the blues. Uh, and, we, and we see a shot here because, you know, Roger is like, well, what are we, you know, what, what are you doing? Like, why would you play this? Like, what, what, what point is it? And Dorothy's like, well, I'm, I've got a reason to play the blues sometimes. And there is a very quick shot of uh, the, the trash can, it seems, or, or some kind of receptacle where uh the the uh business card given to Roger by uh 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 what what was the name Casey Jenkins Casey Jenkins has been torn to shreds and thrown in the garbage now um we don't know the circumstances behind the torn up business card um it could have been Roger you know upon you know the the reveal that that Casey Jenkins isn't who she she claimed to be and Roger's like, man, I've fucking, I've got no luck with with beautiful dames that enter my my crib, uh, but it, it appears the implication is that there's there's some that, that Dorothy's in her feelings about the Casey Jenkins thing, and, and I'm I'm interested in that. I I don't have any conclusions about it, but I'm interested in it. Did you, what did you guys think about this beat? 
My read was similar, but I wanted I wanted to let that thought. I, I'm curious about tracking that, like you, in the future. Yeah, I think I had mostly I had mostly read it just on uh, Rogers. Like, I don't want anything to do with paradigm. This is what I do. So I didn't necessarily read it as Dorothy being involved in tearing it up. But that could be that could connect the blues. That would that would be a, a, a textual explanation. Yeah, I'm I'm down on like there. I, I feel like people hear this and they think of it as like a cheat, right? Like I'm I'm trying to have both answers, but but honestly, I'm down on the the vacuum of not knowing for sure, right? Like I, I'm I'm okay with taking the associated images and and living with both of those possibilities. The the Schrodinger's ripped up uh, business card, <laughs> uh, but but speaking of business cards, uh, I have multiple business cards here from White Castle, uh, not as a sponsor, but and, and to take us away to the sponsor zone. Uh, gentlemen, would you like to join me for some White Castle? I'd be delighted. Definitely. Give me, give, right. me your, give me your best summary for Underground Terror. I want to hear it. <laughs> PMC's like, hit me with your best shot, Ignis. Um, all right, Underground Terror. Roger Smith is once again approached by what is essentially an extension of Paradigm to investigate the fate of Michael Zeebach, a reporter with a relentless quest to find the truth. He's fascinated and driven by the mysteries of the past. Michael, and when Roger uses a tip from Dastin to track down an apartment that Seabach was apparently renting, he is attacked by a mysterious figure referring to himself as Schwarzwald, German for Black Forest, uh, which is a location in Germany. Schwarzwald, who we can guess is Seabach, tells Roger that he'll never be able to find himself. So Roger, after a conversation about dodging existential questions with R. Dorothy, steals himself and ventures into the dark labyrinth of his own soul. Or maybe the subway underneath Paradigm City. Or both? Maybe? Our Dorothy is there, or Shadow Dorothy, who's to say, to embarrass Roger and also to continue their conversation about avoiding thinking too hard about one's own existence. Eventually, together, they are able to find what to the audience appears to be some kind of tech expo? Uh... There, they discover Schwarzwald with his own archetype, Megadeus, a drooping horror that comes to life when Dorothy approaches. Schwarzwald is incapacitated and out of the fight before it really begins, and Roger is able to subdue the archetype despite its greater agility, reassuring Dorothy that she and that monster have nothing in common. Both Roger and Dorothy return from the dark with something more than they had before, noticed, it seems, by Alex Rosewater of Paradigm. Uh, <laughs> underground terror is... Uh, hmm. This might be bold. This is a bold statement, I think. I'm gonna come out swinging. This might be the um Schindler's List of uh, yeah. <laughs> comparisons. There you go. So um, you invoke the discourse. Yeah, that's right. Um, this might be the best thing that's that's like. This might be you know a PMC describes this as the best possible thing to come across uh, like at 1 a.m. Uh, trying to get a snack. This might be one of the best things Adult Swim like had on in this period. Like this lone episode of a show, I was very very like it. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I was so in, in particularly impressed by it in a way that 
I I don't think uh, it, the show gets credit for. This is a very very good episode of of an individual episode of a show that doesn't necessarily like answer anything uh, it, in a in a particular way, but. There's so much happening that that feels to me authentic and and like a sincere whole thought that it feels like I can come away with conclusions even if we stopped watching the show. If we stopped watching the show right now, I can imagine a, a like Big O continuing for like 500 more individual episodes that are all like this, right? Um there's something here where it feels like this is moving the plot forward. The plot as we understand it forward. Uh, while also really treading water, but in the most interesting way. Uh, I, you know, I, I feel like BMC has, has already talked about how he has enjoyed the episode, but I, I really was surprised by how much I enjoyed this. A thing I really want to say about this episode is one of the things that I, I love that it does is that it sort of like grabs us by our lapel and often forces us to stare at sort of quiet things. And it does this in a variety of environments, right? Because we're going to spend like the very – so the opening uh, – we get uh, several narrations from – uh, from Schwarzwald throughout the episode, and they're always in the context of, uh, I think, like the subway, which is kind of dark and run down in the way that we've been accustomed to seeing Paradigm City in episodes one and two. But we also, you know, we'll get that later in the sort of clean section uh, that we encounter later. But we also get a lot of uh, quiet moments walking through um, the Paradigm headquarters. This, this is the episode that I think really makes it clear the sort of power that Paradigm wields because we we spend time traveling into the dome. We spend time within the Paradigm Dome itself. We see functional mass transit when we really have not seen too much of that before. And like very specific, you know, very ornate mechanical, uh, you know, uh, inclines, uh, you know, trolleys, all sorts of things. Art. There's art. There's art in this episode. You know, the, the mm-hmm. painting with the, the angels. Um, and we just, there's a lot of staring at that and all of the, all of the bits of plot. I mean, it's amazing to me in this episode, like the actual, like, uh, sort of moments of, of action, I guess you could say the, you know, getting the, 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 the tip from the, the police officer, uh, Datsun, um, takes so much less time and the episode really chooses to spend its time just sort of staring at train cars or um, or watching Dorothy turn off the hourglasses upside down, which is an incredible scene that, you know, you could probably have a read, you know, to tie it into what's going on. But it requires, I think, you to do that as the viewer, as opposed to being like, Dorothy did this because she was thinking about this. Right. Um, but it's really... And I, and I just love the way that the episode asks... It gives asks you so many questions, and it gives you visual fodder to wonder about those questions without really answering anything, and it's wonderful. Yeah, Steven per- Hero, perfectly well said. This this episode is right up my alley. This episode, I guess, Kanaka has the unique skill of, you know, setting out to answer some questions without answering anything explicitly. But when you come to the end of the episode, you yourself, by actively watching the episode, have already come up with some working theories yourself, which is a harder thing to pull off as a writer than you would think. There's there's a there's a there's a nice deployment of like the iceberg theory here. There's a lot underneath the surface, but the show doesn't explicitly tell you what's under the surface. Doesn't explicitly give you very didact- didactically what's going on. But the crumbs are there. And I appreciate those crumbs. So there are three 
there are three things that I, I was thinking when I'm watching this episode. And, and Stephen Hero, these are all for you. Uh, the first was, well, this one's for PMC as well. I was first thinking of Morpheus. Uh, and 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 <laughs> not not um, uh, Morpheus from the Matrix, but but Morpheus, the the god of sleep, uh, the the figure of dreams. Uh, the second name I was thinking of was Orpheus, uh, and Orpheus uh, the, is a uh, a musician, an artist, uh, a creator of works so profound and beautiful, uh, who journeyed to the underworld to rescue his wife, uh, and was unable to do so. Uh, the the last thing I thought of was Paradise. No, I'm sorry, not fucking Paradise Lost. Um, Dante's Inferno. Mm. Uh, the 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 sort of tour through the underworld that happens in this episode, I, I think, is so interesting. I, I'm I'm really glad PMC that you brought up the interspersed narration that we get from Zebok or Shorts Schwarzwald. Uh, that I, I couldn't convey that in my summary necessarily, but I do think that is key to. Like the experience of the episode, I, I think that if you were to like make some kind of tedious like plot only edit of this episode, you, you would end up with very very little outside of the uh, uh, Roger Smith going to receive this case from Paradigm, right? Um, when when we go to get this case, you know he's greeted by an angel. And he's surrounded by all these images of, of divinity. And when we see, you know, the upper crust have this almost like uh, uh, a gilded cage of, of uh, 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 transportation methods. Like we see Alex Rosewater in a, in a fucking <laughs> a crazy looking thing. And this and gondola a, a, he, is wild. He's, a, he's in a pope mobile. That's what he's in. Yeah, yeah. Basically. Um, <laughs> It, it definitely, I think, especially with the predilection towards, I, I, you know, I, 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 like Roger, of course, is in, in a, a dark a black suit. We learn one of his rules is that if you live in his house, you wear black. And, and we see, you know, figures in paradigm are, are typically are more colorful or are, are uh, like adorning themselves in, in brighter, lighter colors. And it feels like a, a and instead of telling us that they're bad, it just feels like a counterpoint to Roger somewhat, just in a visual language sort of way that I, I thought was interesting. But there, there isn't a ton going on here other than like. <laughs> to sort of establish that angel is mysterious uh, I, you know there's the moment which is a kind of a a nuah kind of thing uh and and i almost wondered uh you know in my in the first episode i invoked magical realism to describe uh the big o's setting and and i think the these uh uh collection of episodes are, are also in that sort of not entirely in that tradition since there isn't a a supernatural force necessarily beyond the magical realism usually involves some kind of actual like supernatural element that occurs that wouldn't be possible otherwise right like or, or some kind of unacknowledged like sort of outside of reality occurrences right like whether that's like text that didn't exist in the real world that's that's referenced correctly or you know uh a uh 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 prose that is written to be like a labyrinth that is describing a labyrinth like that sort of thing uh big o is kind of like that where uh where uh roger when he is describing a paradigm he he refers to them i wrote it down here because it's a fucking great line uh boop 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 boop, boop. what is it maybe this was actually in episode three Oh, the firm called Paradigm is considered both God and state. Uh, and I was thinking, I was reflecting on, man, that's scary. 
right, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, that's no good. Don't want that. Um, you know, we shouldn't, I, I, we, there is a moment in the, in the beginning of the episode where, when we cut in to see Roger, he is, he is negotiating with, with an elderly member of the community who is being asked to leave their home for like, like a business guy. Uh, and the business guy is coded to be like the worst, you know, like he really does seem just like he, he honestly, he reminds me of the, um, I forget the name of the character, but in Crash Bandicoot, there's uh, like a criminal, like a pinstripe or whatever, and he, he looks exactly like, but like pinstripe's an animal, you know. Like right. That's the, that's the that's the level of caricature that this guy is. Yeah, I if you know for some reason he invoked Hammer from Xenogears to me, but that's not that's not all right anyway. Um, so Roger here is taking the the position of like, okay, you know, I understand your concerns. Uh, and we're going to make sure that even if you move, that if someone remembered you and came looking for you, they would find proof that you were here and where you are currently, right? And, and you know, this is how he successfully gets the next mission from Paradigm. Uh, now, uh, remind me, refresh my memory here. We kind of, does he get any additional information from Paradigm? Uh, that we that we see after he he meets with Angel or no, like I, I, after he meets with Angel, does it kind of just cut away and there's more narration? I think I so because so. yeah, I I I I don't know if it's clear if he actually meets someone because remember um, Patricia Lovejoy, uh, yeah, says, that's right, <laughs> says that she's there on behalf of the like the head of the um, the press because the pre- the premise right is that that Zabok is working on a uh, on a on a draft for a book and they want the manuscript but we that, do uh, see him shaking hands with someone after he meets angel so maybe that's angel's boss but that there's no text to go along with that all right so that okay so that explains why i did not remember <laughs> um i i do want to i definitely want to take a second to talk about dorothy in the clock room um, you, you already invoked it, PMC, mm-hmm. uh, as as a moment that that it forces you as an audience member to really because it's so strange, uh, it, it forces you to think about what it is and what's occurring. Um, and it's not strange in a Lynchian like look at this fucked up thing sort of way. As much of it's it's like uh, that's not a shot at Lynch. Everyone, please leave me alone. <laughs> David Lynch is a nice man. Um, it's you know it's there is it's very mundane right it's it's the sort of thing where he's highlighting the mundane which is something that david lynch also does um uh, by just having her like it appears like she's dusting i think she has a, a duster in her hand uh and she's in this this time room that we have called out before if there is a purpose to this time room we are we are not aware of it i'm not necessarily sure we will ever learn its purpose i think it is mostly there for great style and and for us to sit here and think about what what is do you think going on with dorothy here with our dorothy here when she is managing the time room when she is making sure that all of the hourglasses continue to work right to function what is your i'm very curious what you what you guys think i will share what i think if if you if you need a sec to to uh to respond but I was no, very curious what you guys thought about this. I it kind of felt to me like she, she like it's almost like it was like a, a game to her that she she does the first one very carefully and is like, "Oh, okay. I could keep doing this." And then of course because she's an android, she's able to do it rapidly, sort of constantly. Mm. Um it just it feels very exploratory. Uh you know, I I think um 
you know, Dorothy, I, it, Dorothy remains, I think, a w- little more willing to look into the dark than than the regular humans are. Certainly than Roger is. Right. Um, and I think that sort of positions her for b- later in the episode for maybe maybe uh, saying hello to the the big baddie a little a little more quickly than maybe she really wanted to. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to piggyback off my original comment from last episode. It, for me, it emphasized the stasis these people must feel in Paradigm City. Not talking about Dorothy in particular, but the unique way these people would experience time. I mean, um, by constantly flipping the hourglass, it kind of saps the hourglass of any consequence. And just being like being forced to live in this eternal present without the prospect of a future or without the reassurance of the past, that's what it again forced me to... Well, not force me, but encourage me to think over. Uh, so, for me, this cockroom is a kind of in conversation with the the two balcony conversations that occur in this episode. Um, we we are not at the first one. The first one precedes uh, uh, Rogers delve into the dark, and then there's another one once Roger and Dorothy return. Um, and and I think that th- this has to do with that, and in, in which Roger is is implicitly it's not exactly explicit in my opinion implicitly sort of thinking about his his role as a negotiator as he continues to take these jobs for paradigm and then they, they force him to confront how much he doesn't know about the city and himself i i think that is sort of his implicit journey in this episode do you, do you think that's fair yeah i think so um so uh with, with that in mind I, I think dorothy is is on a sort of simultaneous journey that that she doesn't communicate in a in a a straightforward sort of like this is what i'm feeling sort of way she she doesn't respond directly to anything roger says she she sort of just lobs it back at him uh and it feels like dorothy is having not necessarily trouble but is also sort of capable of considering her place in the universe and and mulling it over. She she mentions in a later conversation with Roger how even Zeldano didn't have 100% working knowledge of how putting it together works. It seems like there was some sort of internal machinery that that worked already that they shoved into an R Dorothy shaped like you know uh, suit. You know, and 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 that's where how Dorothy functions. And to me, this this bit where she's turning over these clocks is a is a, a sort of a, a, a not like a I don't want to get dark here, but um sometimes you 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 do stuff in especially nowadays if you are staying inside for long periods of time, you you'll do stuff to differentiate time from other periods of time. Uh, and and so you know. For some people, that means when it's movie time, you, you'll watch, it's Tuesday, it's Disney night, or it's Wednesday, it's Batman night. And maybe that's just a fun way for you to differentiate the days, you know? And, and I wondered if this was a, a mundane activity to sort of remind her that, that she exists. That's the, the feeling I got from it. Uh, but I, I don't think, I actually think uh, exploratory, what, what PMC said, is, is a very good read. I also agree that more with, with Stephen Hero that, that in general this time room is to remind us about the weird nature of time in Paradigm City, especially in a, a place with no memories. Something that, that uh, Seabach, uh, in his narration, is concerned with, right? We, we hear in maybe the second or third narration about like how how long can men yeah can man survive without his memories right exactly which is, which is a direct contrast to roger 
saying in the first episode, yeah, we can adapt. It'll be yeah, fine. Yeah, it's fine. You'll be fine. Uh, so Roger continues his, his quest to find uh, Zebok, uh, which leads him back to Dustin, Dastin, Dastin, um, who really should keep his hat on. Um, he's got something something funky going on with his head. Uh, it looks like there's just like uh, a kind of like uh, he, he, you know how uh, there's that comical shorthand for for uh, someone losing their temper where you see that sort of vein, that sort of stylized vein, and on their head. It seems like he's just got a real one that's just <laughs> on there. You know, I'm not trying to call out any physical, you know, anything going on there. It's just like uh, the hat really complements the shape of his head there. Um, Dayston uh, is uh, adversarial. This feels like um, a kind of a rehash of the conflict that they had in uh, the first episode where it, it, there's some kind of unspoken beef where Roger leaving the police force is some kind of like real problem for Dayston. It seems like. Uh, but it seems also like Dayston, like the way that he... Uh, so Roger gets an important tip from Dayston, which is the secondary apartment that Zebok was renting. Uh, and then there's a moment where Roger's leaving, where uh, Dayston makes a snide remark, and then uh, we see Dayston up, up, you know, to turn over a a uh, picture frame that we see is an exact copy of the picture frame we saw the, in Roger's house. Now, um, I know that this is following up on a story beat. It <laughs> just made me think that Dayston was a jilted ex of Rogers. And I was like, man, Rogers is leaving behind a, a trail of broken hearts. It's just a whole bunch of folks. It's secret agent grandpa one day and it's Dayston the next. Um, uh, but uh, investigating the, the apartment that Dayston found, he, he finds the, the classic uh, journalist graveyard of a, of a, like a Christmas tree of cigarette butts. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to imagine that maybe maybe Schwarzwald was actually like the spy from TF2 and actually smoked <laughs> all of those cigarettes at a single time and then just like took it out of his mouth and placed it down. Oh, so is that what happened to Schwarzwald? Is that uh, he, right. was, he was mental genning and it went terribly wrong <laughs> and it scarred him? He, he played <laughs> Gary's mod with real life and it didn't work out well. Um uh, uh, Roger is attacked upon reading what, some of the work that uh, Schwarzwald has left. Be- or I'm sorry, Zebok has left behind, uh, and and it is revealed he is attacked by uh, a, a figure who refers to himself as uh, Schwarzwald. Uh, uh, what an aesthetic! This, this character is is so striking, and and like you see him, and and you can immediately go like you you even might think that he's the animated series Scarecrow, like he's invoking all of that imagery really really well, um and and the performance even I, I actually really like the, the whoever is voice acting here I think it might be it's it's Michael McConaughey I, I was gonna say I was yeah. gonna say it sounds like Michael McConaughey uh so it's it's my boy Margulis which is very funny <laughs> um. Uh, but the the performance is like how do I put this twisted he 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 really invokes a a sort of um uh 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 on the edge quality that michael mcconaughey i i don't think is like this is not what he normally does like he is normally a a not as like exuberant a performer or someone who is as like 
uh, I don't want to say I, I, I said twisted in reference to uh, uh, the blank check podcast where that's how they disparagingly refer to things like the Joker and stuff like that. But that's I think that is the sort of thing that's being invoked here, right? It would be like Scarecrow or the Joker or 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 that sort of essence of of like uh, uh, you know a scarred individual who's who has learned too much or seen too much and and is like protecting some kind of dark truth or something to that effect like that's the the thing i picked up right away from schwarzfeld what what did you guys think of this guy's design i think it's definitely it's definitely very striking commenting not on his design but on the letter he wrote there's one line that really stood out to me and he says that and this is similar to my comment on how these people must experience time but he writes that, and no one here is even interested in learning the truth that must be known. And I'm, at this point, I'm, I'm kind of glad we're getting some meat on these bones so I could start thinking about some of these, about the event a little bit more critically. But I thought this was like an interesting indication of like the general collective unconscious of this population, how these, how this time-wrecking, this time-disrupting event must affect these people, because it saps them of their motivation. They have no desire to dig any deeper. Now, whether if that that's some um, fear of the unknown, or that's just a general malaise, we don't know, but I thought it was a unique comment on just how these people are experiencing life. I really thought his name was uh, apt, too, because Black, the you know, the Black Forest signifies a lot of things, but to me it signifies mystery, and it's, right. it signifies like a primordial knowledge that lies deep underneath something that you really have to go searching for that you might not want to go searching for. Yeah, I think his visual design, too, really, just, just the way it's scattered. Um, but but also, I mean, an important thing to note about it is that as crazy as the face is with the glass eye and the fleshy eye and the big teeth and the bandages... He also just has like a suit and tie and jacket on <laughs> below, <laughs> which really, you know, it literally ties it all together. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. I, I think it's it's just a great visual design. As we, we get to see him throughout the episode too. I, I think it, it's really important to point out how you're, you're right that he's he's he is otherwise in is like the classic journalist look, right? Where it's it's like a suit and tie and that big brown jacket. Like he he could be a detective from of, of a different show, right? Um, and and the bandages, you know, my, I'm unfortunate to uh, invoke this particular uh, property right now, but uh, Shishio from Roroni Kenshin, I, I got those vibes immediately, uh, and and it, and it's on purpose because he's a burn victim uh, of some sort or something happened to burn him, uh, and and it feels like the the thing he is talking about. I have a question for you guys. Uh, do you think? there is a manuscript somewhere like like was he actually writing anything or did paradigm just tell roger that he was writing a thing that they were looking for uh yeah. and and it was mostly just that he's looking for truth at all and that's against the 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 uh, not the wishes of paradigm but the interests of paradigm i mean like given how given how the last episode went down i feel like we can probably safely assume that to some extent paradigm's request was a pretense yeah i'll, I'll piggyback off that too that, that's what made what Stephen your your comments just made me think of was the idea that uh, no one's even interested in, in in coming to you know finding out this mystery. Uh, you know, my question there is like, well, why would that be? And and a good answer to that would be, well, if if there is a an upper crust or an ability to become upper crust, and and part of the interest of that upper crust would involve maintaining this mystery and on only providing access to the necessary things by this mystery being upholded. 
that that would be how we maintain this this status quo of 40 years of nothing right Mm -hmm. and you know if there's a big evil powerful corporation at the top of this i immediately go hmm thinking face you know i'm not saying i i'm i agnismatics i'm gonna go on record here right now of saying i don't remember how things unfold (laughs) but um that was the if if again if we stopped watching big o right now my guess would be that michael zebach had had not written a specific manuscript that they were looking for and has instead come across other information and th- that uh, paradigm wanted to find him one way or the other, whether that was to uh, assassinate him or what have you is, is a different story. Although I, I believe I could be wrong. Um, is the implication that his, his d- deformity was caused by a botched assassination attempt or is that, or is that not clear by the end of this episode? I'm really, I don't really, like, it's not really clear, right? I don't think it my, was clear, now. Yeah, my read was just that whatever, he dug too deep, either metaphorically or physically, and by that act of digging, he hurt himself in some way. Yeah, it seems like he went to, in the, you know, to continue my tedious metaphor from earlier, he, he went into the underworld and did not come back unscathed. You know, he, he is... He has been changed forever by whatever he found down there or whatever he brought back. Um, yeah, and so, our ima- letting our imagination run, run, run wild works way better than actually explicitly telling us. There, uh, This is the moment where Roger is is considering the the uh, going down to the, the subway, the labyrinth that we had previously introduced as a terrifying place where even criminals and burglars would not go. Uh, and and he does this with a conversation with Dorothy, as as we previously discussed. And this conversation is uh, uh, a fun one where Dorothy <laughs> Dorothy throws Roger's question right back in his dumb face, and Roger's like, "Yeah, you're right. I was talking about myself." Um, and and I think you know, as previously mentioned, this this is together in a piece with the conversation afterwards. Um, you know, yeah, we can just save that till till later when we're when we're through. Uh, the journey to the center of McGurk that we see in this uh, is a, a pretty interesting visual one where we, we see a lot of the the shots that were interspersed in the narration. Um, while also kind of, it's a lot of... Um, I really want someone to make a Metal Gear Solid 3 edit of Roger going down this ladder. Hmm. <laughs> I really want... I just... With him going down this ladder, I mean, what a thrill. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I there's live actually, my because <laughs> there's there's two Metal Gear sequences in this episode because there's the ladder, the very very long ladder, and then once Roger is down the very long ladder, he realizes he's terrified of fucking ladders. He's like, "Wow, I'm so scared right now. I don't know why. It must be ladders. Ah, ladders are very scary," uh, and he's very scared of the ladders. And um, I, hmm, uh. <laughs> Would it be mean if I commented on Stephen J. Bloom's performance here? Where I'm, I'm, I'm not really. I didn't work for me. I'm just not really sure what he's doing. <laughs> I get what they're trying to get across that he's trying to use his his James Bond willpower to be like, no, I will suppress this this irrational feeling. It just feels like they are beholden to a very literal script here, uh, and and the the way that Stephen J. Bloom is doing his like action grunts i don't i don't think this is like this is gonna sound super pedantic i'm very sorry (laughs) this is it just didn't come off to me like the right flavor of like beat there it it just doesn't 
like I knew exactly what was supposed to be happening there and and the performance was like it's like he was being hurt right and and I know that's not really what he was attending to go for there I just think this was one of those like uh, there are vocal ticks that don't necessarily translate, and they were just doing their best to adapt it. This probably didn't stick out to either of you, right? This is just a weird Ignis like a splinter that I ran into, right? But you're convincing me. Your your, your argument, I could see where you're coming from. The problem with, with me is that I just view Roger as a very two dimensional character, sometimes one dimensional character. So I think Stephen J. Bloom fits that perfectly because he is a very archetypal voice actor, and Roger is a very perfunctory archetypal character. Yeah, I I, I think for me, um, I think that's a a good argument for for the casting and the way that that Stephen J. Bloom usually performs the character. Uh, I think for me, the the thing I would say is that there is a like because he is archetypally cool i think he fails to communicate the sort of like stuffy professional in him that him kind of constantly eating shit allows us to sort of endear himself to us like like the fact that he acts so cool and and is kind of a stuffy like professional sort of presentation and then you know, constantly getting bopped or uh, calling Dorothy mom the most embarrassing possible thing you can do. Uh, when if, if you have ever been, shout outs, if you have ever been to school and you accidentally called your teacher mom, hmm. shout outs to you because you moved away or, or you were sent to the shadow realm where you live the rest of your days and you've only recently, uh, uh, you know, recovered from. Uh, but um, in this moment where uh, Roger is overcome by fear... Uh, I, hmm. so like, there's a, definitely an element of Big O where there's mysteries that get introduced and there's a tendency or maybe even an impulse to, to go at this point, like, aha, so this is just a, yet another mysterious element that they can just play off of where we see these mysterious human holograms walking down this, uh, microwave hallway and Roger is, is, is spamming Square and X as much as he can to get through the microwave hallway, but there are just too many ghosts of people he's killed um, that are holding him down. Uh, and, and I was just curious for, for either of you, and, and PMC, if, if you remember, if there's any context for this later, you, you can let me know. Did, did you get an, a, a feeling for what this was other than, like, I couldn't get anything from this other than my underworld journey read that, that this is some kind of like, like he's delving into some darkness that is not only without, but within, but, and, but otherwise, like, what did you guys think about this moment of his fear of ladders? One thing I wanted a bit more, because, you know, he sets it up like he's going to be very introspective. Like, this is why I talk about when I say the Big O is more concerned with aesthetics than anything else. And that's not a criticism. Mm. It's that, like, for example, episode three, he's talking to Dorothy, and they're talking about this idea of personhood. And instead of exploring that idea a little more, they jump right to the gag with the optical disc, which is fine. It fits the tone of the show. I don't really have a complaint. Like, I know this ostensibly, and this, again, this is not a criticism, but this is, you know, cut from the mold of a Saturday morning kaiju show, you know, albeit a little bit more ponderous and a little bit more atmospheric. But there are times which I, like, the, with Roger, he says he's going to confront his past. I'm trying to look at my notes for the exact thing. He says, yes, this is about myself. It looks like the time has finally come to face the darkness within me. But he never actually faces anything personally. Like, I read the ghost as the ghost of yesteryear, because ostensibly what this episode is concerned about is the mysteries of this world, not about the mysteries of Roger's soul. For me, Roger's soul is like the shallow end of a pool. There's not really too much to explore, for me at least. That's my read. 
But the problem with the, the ambiguity here is it really depends on you as a viewer and what you bring into it. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think of um, a, sort of a, a read that I would have on this on this section because I feel like it's just it's so intensely foreign and alien to anything that we've seen. Because at this point, you know, we've seen both the rundown city how dilapidated it ruined it's out is outside and also how nice it is in the in the domes but or especially in paradigm but this is like sort of an alien setting you know all together um and so to me it's really is just more about it's so much about ratcheting up the scope of what is like possible that uh, to me i guess necessarily applying sort of a read of like (laughs) where are we um I don't. I don't know if I. I don't know if I, I get there because it feels like a like a future world, like an ancient ruins or something like that. You know, if I started looking for like a, a an explanation, um, but I don't know. It's it, I'm I'm in such a state of wonder that I, I don't even. I haven't even gotten there yet. You know, it's like I just want to enjoy being like, holy shit, there is alien stuff down here, or you know, something like that. I don't know what it would be. But. Yeah, PMC brings up a good point, but sometimes I'm just so enamored with the imagery that I don't really care to dig any deeper. Like, I talked about Voyager before, and one thing I like about Voyager is I like to sit in the space. Like, I just want to hear the hum of the warp engine, but I don't actually think, like, I don't, like, sometimes deeply process it. It's just, like, background noise, and Big O, I would call, like, artistic background noise. Like, I just like to linger in the space, but I don't really, there are times when my default mode is, you know, not when I'm taking notes, but like my initial watch and where I get a lot of my initial enjoyment is just marinating in this stuff. See, I'm very, you know, I'm very surprised to hear you say that, Stephen Hero. I feel like I, I, I for, you know, just off the top, for one, I, I, I feel like the, the one, the line about uh, delving into the darkness of his soul feels more like he was being cool, like a cool way for him to refer to confronting his fear about delving deeper into the underdark. Uh, that's how I took it. Uh, but I understand the sort of like, oh, I, I wish there was this was a little bit more personal about Roger. Uh, but the, the thing that surprises me more is is, is a sort of like, I, I agree with you that there that this show really effectively creates a an aesthetic sense, a a, a real feel that is conveyed through the the uh, moody atmosphere and the the darkness and the the sort of mystery all around. Not to mention the music. Uh, the the investigation fusion, especially right here, gets completely bonkers. Uh, it, the the soundtrack that plays here, I don't know if there's a, a name for it, but it is wild. Um, but it's it's interesting to me. I, I feel like for me, these visuals make my mind wander, and and I immediately am, am looking for like, oh, this reminds me of this work and that work. Like this is invoking like dream imagery, and this is is the working off of really clever use of like visual storytelling to convey one thing when it means another and, and i don't know i mean maybe maybe that's me giving it too much credit but i i feel like it's a it's a lot smarter than than you're giving it credit for especially when it comes to uh a, a roger like he is definitely a a flimsy sort of character but but it feels like that that flimsiness is in service to something and in a way that that I feel like the show usually pulls off pretty well in a way that, that I think, you know, I, I'm willing to give it that credit, but I don't know. Maybe that's me coming to this with the the eventual sort of big picture in mind and, and giving it that credit ahead of time, but I don't know. I, I feel like when it comes to these moments, especially here, I'm I'm very intrigued about this idea of, of this fear hallway um, and how it, it leads to a reveal of the of our Dorothy showing up in a way that does not make plot sense. Like it, it, it honestly, there is, there's no real, 
and this isn't me cinema sinzing. There's no ding here. What I'm saying is that when it comes to a, a logical perspective, th- there's no reason for Dorothy to have found uh, Roger wherever the fuck he was. Like it, we have, we have no. The only thing we know for sure about the subways is that they're vast, right? And and as PMC pointed out in the pre- previous part of the discussion, you know everything in big o is is scaled up to a million and and we can assume that these these labyrinths beneath the 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 city are like that as well um and so for dorothy to show up and and to be so explicitly linked with his mother in a moment where he's dreaming after you know delving into the deepest part of this underworld is 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 to me so very like pointed and and uh intentional so that uh, like for me my brain goes like so what what are they trying to convey here with this bit like why when he reaches this stage is he overcome with fear what is he afraid of why is it these these uh you know person shaped specters like you know again this might be me pointing out stuff like we might in the next episode i don't think so we might in the next episode learn about uh schwarzwald and his fear gas you know <laughs> that, that cripples folks when they get onto ladders um but i that's the mood that that uh, especially after episode three where again you know so much of the plot of that doesn't necessarily track if you're like making point to point uh but this particular moment i i think is kind of and the way that it introduces our Dorothy into things, or perhaps Shadow Dorothy into things. Uh, this conversation here, uh, this is when the... we Earlier, we, we discussed um, uh, uh, how Dorothy uh, can consider her, her own sort of existential questions about how she doesn't necessarily understand the origin of her own thoughts and feelings in the same way that Roger doesn't. Right, like Dorothy, while a computer with a computer brain and maybe understanding things in a computer way, also doesn't necessarily know where her soul comes from. Right, like where where her her choices come from, why she feels things about certain stuff in the way that Roger, without any of his memories, feels. Uh, you know, also, and how they take the pieces of what they have and do their best with them, which is best exemplified, I think, by the next scene where we find the um. I guess this is what happened to E3. <laughs> Was this the last E3? <laughs> um, uh, Dorothy and and Roger come across a a Zeboim style like ruined what what would appear to the audience like we would see it as a tech expo, right? Like, uh, and and you know, coincidentally, this tech expo is set up in such a way that uh, they appear to be surrounded by a cityscape. It actually what it reminds me of is. Um, uh, uh, behind-the-scenes footage of uh, uh, kaiju films being made, and and how you would have the the uh, performers and their costumes in enormous city sets like this, right? I mean, obviously, this the scope of the area they're in is enormous because we see the the megadeuses fighting later, and they're you know there it appears that those buildings are building sized. <laughs> um. But the the one of the the predominant things in this room is the the like the figure of the the uh, archetype behind uh, that Schwarzwald is is standing on top of the archetype is it's like a zombie it's like a zombie yeah mech? sort of a zombie Megadeus I would say that's a good way and it's because it, it doesn't really have like a mouth it just sort of has like a set of color bars when it makes noises I really dig that yeah. there is a um um a uh 
oh gosh, what is it called? Lost in Space element that it reminds me of, mm. right? Or um, the original War of the Worlds movie, the aliens in that have this like weird Technicolor view screen on them. Um, they might have had it in the Tom Cruise one as well. It has been a long time since I've seen the Tom Cruise one. Um, but that's immediately what it reminded me of, was it was something alien like that, where you recognize it as like communication of some kind, but it's like, it's nothing you could pick apart in that moment because it's flashing weird colored lights. And not only that, but they're, they're arranged in a way where it looks like teeth, right? Um, and, and not only that, but the design is such where it has like an identifiable skull but and 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 there's like eye lights where the skull eyes would be but there's also like these sub eyes where it's like you could see like (laughs) you could see the real darkness in it as well it's it's one of those really clever designs for mech that also it, it conveys multiple things right there's like a horror style to it in a way that even the the lightning god from the last episode while like freaky deaky wasn't like horror in the same way um uh, the archetype, which I don't think is ever named in the episode. I don't think Schwarzwald tells us it's an archetype or anything like that. Uh, that name I've only picked up from uh, in the... I don't know if, Stephen Hero, you have the same one, but in the, the steel book I'm using for the, the Blu-rays of uh, Big O, there is a, a supplementary sort of guide that comes along with it, and uh, that is a handy-dandy guide full of character names and mech names and some artwork and notes and stuff like that and that's where i got this um hmm. uh, i imagine this is google if you just art- type it in but i don't think there's anything else in this episode about this 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 machine is that correct yeah not really yeah okay fair enough um uh the it doesn't seem like schwarzwald has has any control over it or any it just seems like hey i found this thing check it out <laughs> he's like hey are you afraid of this thing well i am too <laughs> Ah, I'm on fire. That's, that's pretty much correct. He really does eat shit in this episode. He's such a great design, but unfortunately, he he's did so not flammable. Learn. He's, he's just, so such a problem. He has not learned his lesson, apparently. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Dorothy, uh, Dorothy is able to, or actually, I, I want to be careful with my wording when it comes to this moment. There is a connection as established between the archetype and Dorothy. And when that happens, the archetype activates and uh, seeks to pursue Dorothy for the rest of the episode. Uh, and the reason I frame it that way is because the way it's shown to us, the, the first conclusion you could come to is that Dorothy is approaching the archetype to, to do something. Because she's walking up to it, she's going, humana, 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 humana. And and you, an astute viewer would think, ah, yes, Dor- Dorothy, our Dorothy, or perhaps Shadow Dorothy, is able to communicate with at least Dorothy One, the Megadeus, and and so maybe that's what's happening here. Um, but whatever it is, uh, Dorothy doesn't like it afterwards. She's like, no, that that no, shut up, idiot. Uh, and and from the dialogue, it seems like what she's struggling with is is. The impression that I got was a, a, a sort of realization that she shares some kind of nature with the archetype. Some something about them there and, and like what makes her Dorothy makes her similar to the archetype and, and that freaks her the fuck out for whatever reason. Whether the archetype is like a shithead or there's something about the, the nature of that technology that's like Catulian or something like that, you know, we, that's up to the kind of the audience to decide. But I, I think that's 
my interpretation of how that breaks down. Do you, do you all think that's fair? Yeah, I think I agree with the consequences. In terms of like the, the mechanics, I definitely it felt like very much what I would call, uh, in engineering terms, a handshake, where, you know, oftentimes when, when two devices try to communicate with each other, they have to go through some sort of handshake in order to establish how communication is going to go. And it very much feels like Dorothy is like, I'm, I'm shaking your hand? What the fuck? Where did this come from? <laughs> you know, that, that oh. she's she sort of... That, that Right, and in that process, I think, arrives at the conclusion that you've already stated, which is that she shares some sort of nature with the archetype. But I think that that very much feels like, um, you know, that that she has discovered something of her of herself that she did not really understand, you know, which is the ability to shake hands in this method with the archetype, uh, which further suggests the point of sharing things with the archetype. Yeah, I, I you know, I will go ahead and cop to like uh, this is sort of the linchpin that my my whole. Uh, you know, journey to the underworld theory is kind of built on it is that like, you know, and this is why Dorothy randomly shows up here is for not only for, for Roger to have a moment of courage here through Dorothy by, by supporting Dorothy in this moment. Um, because as, as Steven has kind of pointed out, like Roger doesn't really have a, 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 a thing to overcome in this episode. It ends up being Dorothy who overcomes a thing. Uh, arguably, Roger overcomes his fear with the power of, of of being embarrassed, doing the most embarrassing thing one can do. Uh, but really, here it's it's through witnessing Dorothy's struggle, her her conflict when she communicates with the the uh, archetype that that you know action is is undertaken here. And Stephen, I'm sorry, I I actually uh, started to talk before you could chime in. What, did you have thoughts about the my take on? The, the the way this broke down. No, I like your take. It's very apt to bring up Cthulhu too. Uh, Iconic is like a big fan of like Lovecraft. I don't know about the, the author, but Lovecraftian style stories. So right. I think this idea of like this cosmic horror lurking underneath the surface. You know, your comparison to the underworld too. I think definitely works. I I do think that they're they're going to be playing with that coding. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I there might be a Dagon in this show. Uh, it, it, you know. Uh, I, I believe there is either a, a mech or a creature we will meet later referred to as Dagon in reference to the the Lovecraftian creature, Dagon. The, mm. the, I believe it's a fish god of some kind. I, I only know it from Dota, which is the activatable item that, that does an instant nuke that you can upgrade over time. Of course, it is one of the most necessary parts to the Dagon Refreshimatar, the most effective strategy ever created by, by TLA, undefeated. Um... <laughs> PMC is just suffering. I'm sorry, PMC. I will free you from this prison. Um, so, uh, the Big O is able to defeat the archetype, which is, uh, you know, a naked sort of skeletal mech, but is is much more agile, is much more able to sort of maneuver around the Big O. But it doesn't end up mattering <laughs> too, too much, because the Big O um, gives him the, the good old Itano Circus, uh, a big old pile of missiles. Now, this isn't, I guess, I guess this isn't technically an Atano Circus because there isn't a moment where uh, the archetype is, like, attempting to artfully dodge a, a series of these missiles and then failing to and then being overcome by them. And I think that's, like, the more specific. But mostly I just mean there's an awful lot of missiles here. <laughs> Which is a, you know, a pretty, I don't want to say traditional, but a, a pretty classic mecha uh, sort of weaponry. 
not as impressive as the Chrome Buster from the last episode. Uh, I actually, this was the only time I had to uh, bring up the episode a third time while I was writing my summary because I, I couldn't remember how the Big O dispatches the archetype. I was like, wait, how does he win this fight? And it's just because he just shoots missiles and it's not super memorable. Um, I, I do like that. Apparently, like the buttons for the missiles are like in a disused hatch and he has to like bang it open. To, to That's true. There. That is a nice detail. The the Norman the, comedy bits were particularly good too. Him cooking. Yeah, is, the, oh. is the meatloaf ready? Yeah, the, uh, it's oh, the even, roast. It's, yeah, it's like pot roast or something like that for sure. Um, and it looks good. It looks like Norman. That's a that's a very huge piece of meat that he's got there. <laughs> um, but um, the 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 big O is able to defeat the archetype. Um, Schwarzwald's fate is unclear. Um, he seems to understand something more about Roger when he calls the big O, uh, but he doesn't really, he just makes some kind of comment. He's like, ah, the, the mega days that that must mean dot, dot, dot. Um, and then the gazelle ministry show up and, and sue him for, for copyright infringement. Uh, anyone being cryptic is, is within suable bounds of the, the gazelle ministry. Um, meanwhile, uh, Roger and, uh, uh, Dorothy kind of instantly escape to the surface and are back on the uh, the the balcony, uh, and uh, Roger is in his robe and, and Dorothy is doing her her <laughs> her real power move of just kind of standing on the edge of the balcony uh, like above Roger. Um, there's what happens here, and this is something that PMC was making reference to earlier. Is is Dorothy is um uh, popping off? Is what I would describe it. Like she just won the Marvel vs. Capcom three Evo, and she's rolling around on the balcony. And and I think what this is, if if you were to ask me, if if I was Stephen here, or if I was in Stephen Hero's class, and he was he was grading me, he's like, hey, g- give me an idea here. I would say. The, that this expression that she does here of her agility, her mandroid agility, is is her accepting that part of her that is similar to the archetype. Hmm. That that her jumping around like this is is a a sort of acceptance. Like yes, I am inhuman. I am I am like that archetype in some way, but I can still be me while doing it. And the graceful dance that she's doing, while also by the way roasting Roger Smith. Uh, it is the most Dorothy possible thing she can do, and 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 that she takes away from this. And Roger, I think, also by being the sort of audience surrogate and and our sort of um, shit. It's Dante who goes on the journey, right? You, it's Dante in yeah, Dante's it's, Inferno. It's Dante. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It, Virgil's Virgil his is, guy. Yes. Okay, thank you. I, I I just didn't want to fuck that up. I didn't want this to be a PMC fucking Three Musketeers. Uh, uh, Who are the three musketeers? I yeah, guess. exactly. The uh, Athos, Porthos, Aramis, and D'Artagnan. Um, I think is that right? Yeah, yeah, you're good. You're good. Oh, okay. Fucking hey. oh god. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in any case, Roger and is is standing as the audience surrogate gets to gets to go on the journey to the underworld, and and our present our prize for that is we we get to see the only insight into Roger that we had thus far, which is that at one point he had a mom. <laughs> And he liked her, <laughs> um, which you know, granted, not much. But Dorothy is also able to come away with that, with a, a greater understanding or belief, at least for this episode, that even if she is a robot, that she could still be Dorothy and and perform as Dorothy. Uh, that's that's mostly for me why the um, the read of an underworld journey or a journey into dreams or a journey into self is 
kind of what I took away from this episode. And in a way, I wasn't prepared for. Like, PMC was hyping this episode. I, I you know, PMC, I think, was a little bit ahead of me when it comes to watching this. And uh, I, I was ready to enjoy it because the big O is good. Um, but I wasn't prepared for something that was a little bit more, I don't want to say cerebral because it doesn't ask too much of you, but it really, it really made me think a lot in a way that other stuff hasn't recently. I I appreciated it for that. And, and don't forget that the mystery is still out there. The final moments of the episode, there's no characters, no narration. It's just a drop in a puddle in the subway and it just echoes to nothing. It's wonderful. Uh, the the only thing I really I, I failed to mention um, that we should because you're right that final shot is perfect. Um, but there is a moment where Alex Rosewater is is reflecting that Roger is is a good negotiator <laughs> because because he beat a robot. I mean, and I was like, yeah, that sure, <laughs> yeah, perhaps Maybe, a different uh, kind of negotiation, but yes. <laughs> yes. Um. Now, now that we are here, uh, did you guys have any final thoughts on three and four? No, I don't. I don't want to seem like I'm down on the show, but uh, I'm not. So, um, I'll give a comparison to go back to my point here. Like, for example, I was watching Iron Man three with my wife over the weekend. Iron nice. Man three is a great film. I love it very much. I love it more for spectacle than anything else. I think it ta- it talks about it uses trauma as a plot device. I don't think it is overwhelmingly the point of the film, nor do I think it has anything overwhelmingly poignant to say about trauma. I don't think it's deployed in an offensive manner. But a lot of these trappings, these I find more superficially deployed in the Big O, and I don't think that's a problem. I think you could enjoy something purely on aesthetics, but that's just where I'm coming from with the Big O. I think I'm just really excited to see the to see something happy to to give us a sense of wonder and amazement and not necessarily be too concerned about having there be some sort of uh you know clockwork explanation to what's going on and also the the homages to other things are well are great you know episode three is just a sort of perfect little kaiju episode um, I mean, everything's very kaiju-esque, but I think that episode in particular is a very yeah. sort of classical, you know, it's a classical it, performance. It definitely is. No, no, no. You're, you're, I think that is spot on. And then episode four is just, uh, is just a great, uh, tour. I, I could be, uh, you know, in the little, like, in the little, you know, uh, car on a train just sort of going through all these settings, um, and just, you know, just sort of wondering about this world, uh, you know, while getting to see, I think, some of the some of the points that we talked about in terms of the characters of, of Dorothy and Schwartzwald. Um, yeah, it's just a lot of fun. Very enjoyable. Yeah, I think it's 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 really interesting how in this particular case, we're all enjoying our time, but but coming away. And, and like both episodes that we've done thus far, it's really interesting how all three of us kind of have a different picture the same general idea but a different picture of what's going on it, it speaks to i think you know n- not necessarily that this is like a ah oh, the nuance the texture of the show but the, the fact that all three of us can can kind of come away with a different taste in our mouth about it is i, I think testament to its strength yeah on the record this is one of my favorite shows we've watched for the podcast thus far it's definitely surprising me with how much i'm enjoying it i'm, I'm looking forward to not necessarily answers uh, but I, i'm looking forward to staying in paradigm city some more and and uncovering a little bit more of its underlying tensions, the, the the things that actually make it tick, it seems like are being revealed to us very slowly. And I'm, I'm tempted to uh, dig ahead and, and remind myself exactly how things break down. 
Uh, but then, even if I, I end up, you know, <laughs> swallowing my own foot in the next couple episodes when it's revealed, you know, uh, fucking Schwarzwald had like secret fear powder on on the ladder, and <laughs> he was also his 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 first snake turned into the lightning god because Paradigm City experimented on it. Like you know, I'm definitely sort of. Uh, uh, giving the text a lot of weight that I think I'm bringing to the the material rather than the material is bringing itself. Uh, but I still think in 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 this case and when it comes to that sort of thing, you can take what I've got to offer and and if you like it, you you can keep it and, and enjoy it. And if you don't, you know, I think Stephen and and PMC have brought up a lot of really good points about what the show has been been bringing to the table. And I'm excited about five and six, five and six actually. We may also, I think, I think at this point we've we've decided we're we're going to be moving forward with this. We will have a special episode for five and six. I think you should pay attention to mechanationspod at twitter dot com, mechanations at gmail. If you wanted to get get a hold of us that way, but uh, we will inform you of a, of a special guest moving forward. Awesome, yeah. Looking forward to I, it. I think we're people think talk that, about that, five and six very glowingly, like as the high point of the show. Damn, that's crazy, because 4 blew me away. <laughs> I'll be honest, like, I'm sitting here like, I really want to watch 4 with my partner because of how good it is. Um, 4 would yes. work really well as a even a season ender, too. Oh, for sure. I, I kind of, there's a part of me that sort of wishes the show was over. <laughs> um, but, but on that note, the show is not over, and, and so we will... <laughs> We will meet again next week to discuss episodes five and six of Big O. I, I was one of your hosts, Ignis Maddox. Steven here. PMC Trilogy. And you can catch us. What is the last one? It is not our, our um, it's like no side. Is that what it says? What does it say in the last episode? No, oh. no side, right? Is it, it no, say no side? side? Yeah, well, no yeah, because they never side. came to a conclusion right. with the negotiation process. We, we have not come to terms. Oh, there you go. Oh. Yeah, there is no side. We have not come to turn the end. Oh, yeah. I wasn't even in front of the mic yet. <laughs> That's a loud ass fucking.